Welcome to the last three rows of horror podcast. Happy Friday the 13th. Mike here with Sal. Thank you very much. And Sam. And yes, folks, we are going to cover the entire Friday the 13th series slash franchise. We're going to start with the first film, do all the sequels. Uh, this episode, we're going to go through as many as we can. And then it is probably going to be a two or three part uh, episode on uh, lovely Jason Voorhees. So, Sam, take it away. I want to know, uh, first of all, what was your guys' kind of introduction to the series? It was like a first movie you guys saw? I was young. Uh probably one of the first slasher films i've ever seen i remember i think i told the story before my sister had like a slumber party her friends were all scared hiding underneath their sleeping bags and blankets and i was sneaking in like behind the couch to see what they were watching and i just remember laughing my ass off because <laughs> i just i don't know i probably shouldn't have at that young age but you looking at you look at back at these movies now they're they're kind of cheesy and they're fun to me, they were funny when I was young, so I'd say probably I was five years old. Definitely. That's how I remember it. I know like when I was younger in uh, like middle school, I think Jason Lives was probably the first one we've seen. It was like nice. you know, we, it was slumber party or whatever like that, and we're all just rooting on Jason as he's murdered everybody. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sal? Uh, first of all, I'd like to make a quick shout-out to Mike Oliver. It was his birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mike. Um, now we can get on to Jason. <laughs> uh, you know, I was 19. Went to Hillside Theater to see that. I'll never forget that. And at the time, my best friend's uh, girlfriend was with me. And we just said, you know, we're waiting for him to get off work. And we're like, man, you know, there's this new movie called Friday the 13th come out. Okay, okay. And she was that girly girl. Everything she screamed at, everybody was watching. The harder she screamed, yeah, the harder she screamed, the more I laughed. So I'm kind of like Mike. I, th- was, it, was it scary back then? Hell yeah. But, I, but I'm that guy. I laughed. I laughed at quite a bit. Just at her. But the audience's <laughs> reaction was just amazing. It was it was fantastic. That's awesome. I love those memories like that. So getting right into it, uh, Friday the 13th is a franchise that comprises 12 films, a television series, numerous documentaries, novels, comic books, video games, and tie-in merchandise as well. The franchise mainly focuses on the fictional character Jason Voorhees, who was thought to have drowned as a boy at Crystal Lake due to negligence of the camp staff. So decades later, the lake is rumored to be cursed and the setting for a series of murders. Jason is featured in all of the films, either as the killer or the motivation for the killings. So the original film was created to cash in on the success of Halloween in 1978, and the franchise has since grossed over $468 million worldwide as the highest grossing horror franchise in the world. That is, of course, until 2018's Halloween was released, dethroning Friday as a top franchise, and also... I hear that when uh, Halloween Kills comes out in you know a month or two, it's going to be uh, Halloween will have a bigger body count than Jason now. I believe it. I know uh, Paramount Pictures Friday Thirteenth is probably their most well-known series and franchise. Who owns the? Um, I'm sorry, yeah, Friday Thirteenth. Who owns uh, Halloween? The, all the sequels and everything. Oh, I'm not. I'm not really sure to be honest. We shall find mm-hmm. out. You would well, think. You would whoever... think Carpenter. Well, no, I mean, it, it's got to be, well, well, Carpenter didn't make, wait, what am I talking about? It's, it's probably a studio that, that owns the entire franchise, like the rights and everything. Right. Carpenter right. just made, just directed the, well, first one. I don't think it would be under like David Gordon Green's company at all. I don't no. Know. Well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to look that up. But well, I know like the, the, the producer, actually the guys that own it is probably the Akkad family that produced yeah. the first one. Mustafa Akkad. Mustafa but, but, Akkad. but you know what's weird? You know, my nephew brought up uh, 
the uh, franchise. Uh, what, what was really cool is I found out that, uh, which was just is really freaky to me, and I think it's awesome. Uh, believe it or not, Part 3 made more money than E.T. in 1982. No part kidding. Th- yeah, Part 3, when it came out, um, it was such a big hit. <laughs> was that the 3D, Sammy? Yeah, that was three. And my nephew brought that up to me the other day, and I watched it again. I laughed my ass off. But yeah, it made more. It it uh, raked in more on the box office than ET in 1982. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I know uh, ET beat out a lot of people. It yeah. did beat out the thing. Yeah, John Carpenter's the thing. Uh, that was that was a flop in the theaters in '82. Yeah, it's another one of those that's only become like a cult classic yes, in recent years. Definitely a cult film. Nice. So uh, a couple of sources I use to kind of put this episode together. Uh, Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall is a slasher film. 1978 to 1986 is an awesome book. It kind of chronicles like... Good documentary, too. Yeah, the whole Rise and Fall of the slasher film by this guy, um, Adam Rockoff, wrote this book. You could tell like by reading it that he's a real fan of the slasher films, not just someone who threw this book together, you know? Cool. Um, another one, Crystal Lake Memories. Yes. It's a, a book and an awesome documentary. It's like five hours long. Definitely oh, yeah. recommend that to anybody. Uh, you guys have seen that, right? I've uh, glanced at the book. I have yet to see this documentary, but I, I have seen the documentary on the franchise called His Name Was Jason. Yeah, I meant to get into that. And that I, haven't that into I that seen. Yet. His Name Is Jason. Awesome. I'm going to awesome. have to watch that Yeah, next week probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, Friday the 13th was not some well-packaged marketing juggernaut or high-concept idea in which Hollywood producers pushed the film through the movie machine, assuring box office gold. In fact, it was nothing more than a vaguely sinister title thought up by a man who was brainstorming in his office. That man was Sean Cunningham, who was born in New York in 1941. Um, he cut his teeth directing commercials and some softcore nudie films, such as nudie. the pseudo-documentary uh, The Art of Marriage and Together. Um, the latter, which starred uh, Marilyn Chambers, also <laughs> managed to start the Rialto Theater for an astonishing 31 weeks. Uh, his next project, which he developed with his close friend Wes Craven, was a notorious Last House on the Left. Oh, yeah. You guys have seen that one, too? It's only a movie. It's the, only the a movie. The first one and the remake. Yep. It was awesome. Yeah, the remake wasn't bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I liked oh, it. Did you like it, Mike? Uh, I love the original. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know what? Uh, what was the other one? That came? I Spit on Your Grave? I Spit on Your yeah. Grave. Yeah. Those oh. are like your classic rape revenge Was films. that 78, yeah. 77? Late 70s. I can't believe they let that movie out. <laughs> well, back to Sean Cunningham. Uh, desperate for money for the, to pay for the fledging post-production factory, which he had just opened, he produced The Case of the Smiling Stiffs, uh, Stiffs in 1974, which is a dismal failure with audiences everywhere, except for the Australian market, which loved it for some reason, um, followed by a Spanish film, Planet Siega, in 1976. Um, he then directed two adolescent sports films, Here Come the Tigers, and uh, which is a bad news Bad News Bears clone and Manny's Orphans, which is a feel-good movie about a soccer team from a Catholic orphanage. And Manny's Orphans is Ari Lehman. Yeah, Pr- uh, prior to Friday Thirteenth. What, what, okay. what are you doing that? He, it's like yeah, it's it's orphans and they're on a soccer team. It's not great. It's like Bad News Bears. He says on like a couple of his panels and stuff like that. I haven't seen the movie, but he says that he was like a sex-starved teenager or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> that horny redheaded kid. That's right. So. Manny's Orphans was optioned into a television series, and Cunningham was relieved to get a nice paycheck, but he was also convinced that the film would have benefited from a better title. Like, for instance, people kept telling him, like, oh, Manny's, it's too ethnic, or, you know, Orphans, people aren't going to go watch a sad movie. That was well, just shit, a... wasn't, like, Different Strokes, would you consider them Orphans, that got fostered by Mr. Drummond? Pretty much, yeah. 
Yeah. Not that sad. But I don't know. I what guess you talking about, Sam? <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? Uh-huh. <laughs> and what's, what's Mike's other buddy's name? <laughs> Dudley. <laughs> Dudley. <laughs> what Poor you Dudley. You got diddled? Dudley got diddled. <laughs> well, was he gay? So, oh, yeah, Willis. <laughs> so was he gay? <laughs> For those of you who have no idea what the fuck we're talking about, watch the Bicycle Owner episode of Different Strokes and your life will change. I put a, a clip, and uh, there was one of our episodes where we were talking about that, where the, the bicycle shop owner gives him a present, and he goes, uh, you keep coming with these presents, you can scratch me all over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Arnold. All right, so sitting around brainstorming titles and thinking about the success of Halloween, Cunningham thought that if he had a film called Friday the 13th, he could sell that based on the sinister title alone. So it was months later that he decided with a come up uh, with an ad with a commercial artist. It was in big block letters, crashed into a plate of grass and it re- glass, and it read, "Sal, you want to take this one over?" Friday the thirteenth. And actually, um, that's not what it read. Right on the on the screen. Oh, I put I'm it. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's time I'm to narrate. The <laughs> From the producer of Last House on the Left comes the most terrifying film ever made. Friday the thirteenth. But no, one more time, but say it's scary. scary. Okay, Make hold it on. scary. Hold on, I gotta get my scary. I'm Cunningham here. Make it scary. From the producer of Last House on the Left comes the most terrifying filmmaker make All right, I'm gonna do this <laughs> hold on, hold Jason Statham voice. Hold on. Jason okay, Statham voice. Okay, okay. From the producer of Last House on the Left comes the most terrifying film ever made. Friday the thirteenth. Yeah. I thought you hated that guy. I do. <laughs> He's a douche. But that's that's a great movie voice, though. <laughs> but did but did you guys know that when this came out, the title came out, and I'll never forget the advertisement. They didn't even have the money yet to make the movie. Oh, did I bet. You know that? I they, bet. I, yeah. Unbelievable. So that's what I was just about to bring up. After Cunningham read, ran the ad in Variety, various companies from all around the world began asking to see the film, which wasn't even written yet, much less made. But the buzz that the title generated enabled him to drum up half a million dollars to begin production. So that's when he found uh, Victor Miller here. So Cunningham, <laughs> together with screenwriter Victor Miller, who had no horror experience, came up with a script with the working title of Long Night at Camp Blood. It was Miller who was responsible for the now-immortal name of Jason Voorhees, as he had used the name Jason in a previous novel of his and knew a girl in his high school with the last name of Voorhees and had always loved the sound of it. Yeah, because I was just mentioning you and Mike. That he wanted it to be Josh Voorhees at first, and he's like, mm, nobody's gonna be afraid of that, so he changed it to Jason. Yeah, which Josh I thought, doesn't which sound I thought very threatening. Awesome. It did, it didn't, <laughs> and and you know what? I just recently found out there really is a Camp, Camp Crystal Lake. Did you know that, Mike? Well, uh-huh. where they filmed it, it's up in Jersey. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you got Crystal Lake, Illinois. Yeah, and and, and it's they, it's still functional. It's still going. Camp Crystal mm-hmm. Lake. Yeah. yeah, it's actually um, it was I shot in the fall awesome. of 1979 at uh, Camp Nobi. Bosco, which is an abandoned Boy Scout camp just outside of Blairstown, New Jersey. Um, although Cunningham chose the location primarily because of the empty cabins that provided cheap lodging for mostly non-union and non-professional cast and crew, the isolated setting plays a large part in creating the film's mood, which he's talked about on our isolation episode. Um, by day, the camp is just a quaint summer hideaway, but at night, the darkness of the North New Jersey woods becomes oppressive, slowly closing in on the characters and making escape seem hopeless. Right. Which I heard, um, this is actually, yeah, running Boy Scout camp um, right now. They don't really do shit except for probably like days like today, Friday the 13th, where I think they give tours and stuff around the place. I heard when they made this film on the opposite side of the lake, another horror film was being shot. I don't know exactly which one, but I maybe it was The Burning. 
It might, no, because I know um, Tom Savini worked on the burning after this. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. My which, mistake. Which surprised me. And <laughs> 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 which surprised me that Savini only worked on the first one and the fifth one? Oh, uh, the fourth one. Final the fourth chapter. One? Yeah. yeah, the first mm-hmm. one and the fourth one. Uh, and you you could tell. You could tell. Because like, uh, even the makeup on Jason and 2, it, it, it scared me. It did its job. But you could tell it wasn't Savini. So let's uh, get into the first Friday the first. Uh, Friday the, f- let's get into the first Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> film. <laughs> was, uh, so basically, the film tells the story of a group of teenage camp counselors who are murdered one by one by an own unknown killer while attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp. So uh, we're gonna get into some murder, some death, and some killing. Murder, death, first, kill. Let's talk a little more about Tom Savini. Yeah, that's right. Tom Savini's a uh, special makeup effects artist, uh, actor, stuntman, and director. Bl- director responsible for some of horror's most iconic images uh the machete through the head from the dawn of the dead the shotgun in the, to the head a maniac oh yeah um captain Rhodes getting torn apart by zombies in dawn of the dead even his acting work is iconic you may not recognize the name savini but you better goddamn recognize him and his iconic cock gun is sex machine from from dust till dawn come on sex machine <laughs> So, like we said, Tom was only directly involved with the special effects makeup in the first entry of the series in the fourth installment, the final chapter, but no doubt was an entire was an inspiration for the entire series. Um, I was able to pull up a screenshot while I was watching, uh, I think this is part three, where a girl is reading a Fangoria magazine, she opens it up, and the first article in there is Tom Savini, oh, new cool. master of mag- magical makeup. Nice. Y- you, know, you know he was... Uh... He was a photographer in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was a photo- How scary is that? You Here's know, a guy. George wanted him to do night. Yes. But he went to Nam. Right. And uh, when he came back, he got, you know, the gig for plenty of other Romero films. Right. I mean, how, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's so disturbing. A lot of his makeup job and a lot of his creations were because of some of his photographs from Nam. Yeah. Which is. Uh, yeah, oh it was like God. his job to take pictures yeah. of actual wounds, Cor- right? right? Well, the corpses. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I read, I read somewhere the other day an article on him that, um, you know, when you're a photographer, you're taking a chance too. You know, just because he didn't fight it doesn't mean he wasn't there. He was there, right? And I remember in the article saying that uh, he practiced some of his uh, skills out there, and actually one of the um, uh, one of the other soldiers broke into their camp. And he had he was making he was working on this this one image of a of a head, and he scared the guy out with that head, <laughs> and that's a true story. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, he's fighting the enemy. Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he's taking photographs. He's of of of, of God knows what, you know, because nobody really likes talking about Nam, right? Right. And 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 the horror and the makeup ideas he was getting, and he actually makes up this head and uses it to scare away the enemy. <laughs> How disturbing is that? Thank you for your do service, you, Tom. Do you, yeah. think, do, so, you think so, that, do you think that was molded off like a real Vietnamese head he had right next to him? You, you know what? <laughs> you know what? According to your article, it pretty pretty much was. And and again, he was only practicing. But when this guy came in, you know, I mean, Savini didn't freak. He just said, "Hey, fuck you! Look at this!" And that guy took off like a bat out of hell. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's a scary story in itself. <laughs> the guy, I imagine the guy running in with a bayonet, and Savini goes, "Hey, check a look at this." <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean, the man's a badass. He yeah. is Savini, Savini, and he's a gymnast. Yeah, he's a gymnast. Uh, you know, and and I didn't know. I, I knew he produced. I knew he obviously is a makeup guy, but I didn't know he was a gymnast. And um, well, he and, did that. Uh, he stunt did that, coordinator. He did that big swan dive in Dawn of the Dead. 
Well, and he did that. Do um, you remember when he was on a pool table and dusted on? And he oh, yeah, got the whip and, and kick he flipped in. over. That was him. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't give these guys credit, man. I mean, here, here he is. He's multitasking. Oh yeah. He's he's incredible in in our genre, dude. Come on, he makes up this stuff. He's a producer. He he, you know, and, and a stunt guy. Yeah. And he's pretty much retired now. I he think, owns a he? school in Pittsburgh where you can learn to do makeup. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. He's he's in his seventies already. I think he's seventy one. Oh, for Mike? sure. Seventy one. Seventy two. Oh, you know what? That was yeah. That was actually in this documentary um, of Tom Savini. Everybody should check out "Smoke and Mirrors: The Story of Tom Savini." The end of it. Yeah, they show a bunch of his makeup school. I remember that. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into some murder, some death, and some killing. Murder, <laughs> death, kill. The film opens in 1958 at Camp Crystal Lake. During a campfire sing-along, two counselors sneak away to an empty cabin to indulge in nature's more cardinal pleasures, but they're interrupted by an unseen figure who proceeds to stab and murder them both despite the girl's terrified screams. And this is a, a pretty, you know, a POV opening in the beginning from the killer's perspective. She stabs him. So um, a little later on the in first, this... Uh, the first kill of the film. Yeah, this is, we're watching the first kill of the film right now. It, uh, pretty much a young kid is stabbed, and then uh, his girlfriend is chased into the corner where we uh, get a little slow-motion zoom-in, a stop, and then we get a, that big variety that we were talking about before comes slamming through the picture again, Friday the 13th through the plate glass. Awesome. We're going to see a lot of people go through plate glass windows in this whole series. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what do you guys think of that effect? I, I, you know what? If you told me now uh, the still effect would, would bother me or disturb me, I'd be like, kiss my ass. But, man, when you see it on this... You know what? I, and I'll never forget when I first seen that. That scared the shit out of me. Well, it worked. I like that effect. It, it worked. Did. It did. <laughs> what do you think, Sammy? Oh, I mean, I love do you like it. that? Yeah. Did it still effect like that? Yeah, definitely. The film moves forward to the present day, uh, Friday, June 13th, 1979. A young woman named Annie Phillips enters a small diner and asks for directions to Camp Crystal Lake, much to the shock of the patrons and staff. Uh, Enos, a friendly truck driver from the diner, agrees to give Annie a lift to the Crossroads Cemetery which is halfway to the camp. Um, on their way from the diner to Enos's truck, they encounter our first trope, Yay. the Prophet of Doom. <laughs> it's got a death curse. It's got a death curse. <laughs> You're all doomed. Crazy Ralph. That's right. Crazy, Crazy Ralph Neely Ralph. is played by Walt Gorney. Ralph was the very first person ever to warn people about the dangers of being in or near Camp Crystal Lake after its 1958 closure. But because his reputation was soured by drunkenness and presumed <laughs> madness, he nobody shit-faced. ever listened to him and his warnings. And as it turned out, Ralph's warnings were right all along. So as a result of people being around the accursed camp, many of them lost their lives over the next three bloody decades. What do you think? <laughs> I thought he was the killer. Sometimes when I have... first seen this, when I first seen this film, I f- I would have bet my life he was the killer. Sometimes it pays off to listen to the town drunk. Oh yeah. And you can tell Wolf's a town drunk because he's uh he's got a bike that he's riding around on too. Too many DUIs. Which is disturbing. <laughs> which is so disturbing. He rides that little bike, and I was worried from the fall. <laughs> that's the dead giveaway that he's the drunk because he's riding around on a bicycle. I know, that's, Sam. That's right. But, that's but, right. but he, when he was when he first he, there was a couple of scenes where he's taking off on his bike. I was betting that he'd fall, and I would have laughed my ass off. <laughs> He's too got much a little basket on there. Too much moonshine, eh, Ralph? That's right. Are there any like town drunks around your town? You think? <laughs> that ride a bike? Probably. Uh, I live. Maybe in they, L- they are all. They only come out at night. <laughs> I live in Lombard, and there's definitely there was a guy that used to ride around for like ten years on a bike that was around. I don't know where he's at anymore. He might have got hit by a train or something. Oh, no. Who knows? 
All right. Well, um, after so we're talking about truck driver Enos. He's played by Rex Everhart. Um, <laughs> well, en route to the lake, Enos begins to tell Annie that maybe it would be best if she went back home. He tells Annie all about the tragedies that have struck the camp over the years as well. Um, so Enos was no doomsayer at all, but he was indeed the first reliable person in good conscience known to warn somebody to stay away from Camp Crystal Lake. But despite Annie's spirit and enthusiasm and good intentions, Eno's warnings were unfortunately correct, and if Annie would have listened to him or Crazy Ralph, she would have lived Crazy and not become Ralph. the first victims of the camp's new staff in 1979 or Pamela's Pamela Voorhees' first victim since the 1958 murders. So that brings us to our first kill. Uh-huh. Um, after Annie, um, I'm sorry, this is our third kill in the movie. After Annie hitches to the camp with another driver who is suspiciously quiet and speeds up past the entrance to the camp, Annie starts to panic and jumps out. And the driver chasing the injured girl into the woods, catching her and slitting her throat. Slice and dice. <laughs> That's the classic serial killer line, too, where it's like, hey, wasn't wasn't that our turn back there? <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. Where are they, you going? That in that scene, by the way, um, the person who slashes Annie's throat, that's actually Tom Savini. That's him. Oh, it is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he plays that part. So back at the camp, uh, the counselors Ned, Jack, Bill, Marcy, Brenda, and Alice, along with the owner, Steve Christie, refurbish the cabins and the facilities. As a thunderstorm approaches, uh, Steve leaves the campground to stock up on some supplies. Another guy takes a walk. That's Ned, played by Mark Nelson. He notices someone that is dressed with black slacks, brown plaid shirt, and a class ring. That person is standing outside Ned and Marcy's cabin. As Ned approaches that person, he asks, Can I help you? And then he goes into the cabin where he's murdered off camera. I'm, I'm glad he got it. He's a dumbass. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just a walk he was doing there. I'm, you know, for our audience's sake... Uh, we're watching a big video screen again, and he's walking like he needs his ass kicked. <laughs> is it just I'm mean, or is it Friday the Thirteenth doing his thing? Well, he's kind of the jester of the group. That's the whole. That's another <laughs> yeah. troop that we find where there's you know the one of guy. everyone. Yeah. Well, 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 next to next all, to the black guy, the funny guy gets killed too. Yeah. Well, well, well. First of all, if funny guy or not, he was a dumbass for shooting that arrow at that girl. He could have hit her. <laughs> so right away, I hated that guy. You know, you know the classic horror movie slasher formula. Of course, the black guy gets it first. Well, sometimes the the, the court jester does too. Oh yeah, stoners, court jesters—they yeah. all get it first. Anybody black who people, has sex, you're dead. If you're a funny black stoner, you're, you're dead, dead, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so the next time we see Ned, <laughs> he's fucking dead. He's got, <laughs> Told you. <laughs> he's got his uh. So as the couple Jack and Marcy go into the cabin, they start to have sex in a bunk bed, and unaware that Ned's body is in the bunk above them with his throat slit, we find that out. Um. So Jack is played by uh, Kevin Bacon. I don't think this oh, guy's yeah. really done anything Foot since loose. this movie. Yeah. yeah. Anybody? Footloose. Yeah. I think I've seen him in uh, some dancing movie. Yeah. yeah. Footloose, right? Yeah. Maybe, but that's about it. That's why I said it. So um, <laughs> after Marcy leaves, Jack leaves a joint. He's got that uh, postcodal sex uh, face going on. A little bit of blood drips on his forehead post, before the postcoitus. Postcoitus. Yeah. Would they piss you guys off if you got a good coitus. piece of ass? Got high and then dead, or would you just no. would you want to get hey, dead? That's the way to go out, right? Yeah, that's the way to go out. <laughs> Smoking so, a J. So the killer grabs his forehead and rams an ammo an arrow through the bed, piercing his throat. Um, this is uh, we were just talking about this a minute ago, but he's got the we we're talking about how they did this trick. So he's uh, basically Kevin Bacon is sitting on the bed, or he's sitting under the bed with his head poking through. They got a prosthetic like a fake uh, shoulders that's. Mm-hmm basically on the bed with, when the torso. arrow goes through it 
what happens is someone blows on a tube that has uh, blood going through it, and that's what made it spurt out like that. I know he had mentioned that um, uh, he was under the bed. Yep. And and it, mal- it, it malfunctioned. So he had to actually grab that hose and blow into it. Hmm. And, and that's why that blood just came out like that. And I was like, oh, man, how cool would that be, you know, to be with Tom Savini working on that film? Yeah. And, you know, he, he didn't panic. He did, you know, he did what he had to do. He took took that hose apart underneath the bed and just blew it into himself, and it was an excellent scene. Yep. Excellent scene. Oh, yeah. Very special effects. Yes. It's, uh, you can um, check the story out in um, Camp Crystal Lake, or Crystal Lake Memories. Um, Tom Savini talks about how he did a scene in Martin where he shoved uh, a stick through a guy's throat so Martin could drink his blood, and he basically just transferred that over to this movie. Pretty inventive, got to say. I, I, I don't remember Martin. What? what, what? Romero's vampire film. Oh, it was? It was a vampire yeah. film? Mm-hmm. Well, not in the traditional sense. This guy thinks he's a vampire. Yeah, see? This is what I was talking about. I remember Savini saying that something went wrong because it looked like a, like a, you know, like a, like a pump that you fill up your tires, and something went wrong with it, and Savini took it apart and had to blow in it huh. to make that blood shoot out like that. That was an awesome thing that Daddy did so quick. Oh, yeah. I think uh, the guy who blew into the pump is actually like his assistant. They talk oh, about this I'm guy sorry, is yeah. Tazo. Right. Oh yeah. Well, Tom, well, Tom was underneath, yeah. and the other guy was on the other side. Mm-hmm. And and I remember uh, interview, an interview with Kevin Bacon saying how uncomfortable he was because he had to like kneel under that bed. I mean, that had to have been rough, man. Just sitting there shooting it. Uh-huh. A lot of people don't understand. You know, these scenes sometimes take. You know, all day, a couple hours, sometimes a couple of days. Yeah, a lot you of know? times people got to get, get into awkward positions for those. That's right. also how they did that one with the girl where, uh, that we just talked about where she gets her throat slashed. There was like a fake body, and then her head was just out of the top of it. So when they mm-hmm. slid it, it was just, you know, a dummy. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, right. Think, think of people that have to, like, climb into costumes to, to make uh, something work. For example, uh, Jabba from Return of the uh, Jedi was, I think, two little people were mm-hmm. in there ma- making uh, – Job and move around. Next up on the chopping group, we got uh, Marcy that was played by Jeannie Taylor. This is one of my uh, favorite kills in this movie. When she Mar- looks cold in that picture. Yeah, definitely. She was very cold for a lot of this movie. Uh, when Marcy's using the bathroom, she hears a noise from the shower room. Um, she thinks that it's the counters pulling a prank on her. As Marcy as Marcy approaches the showers, she opens the shower blinds, thinks that it's only her imagination, but then from the shadows. Axe is raised, and Marcy turns around, and it's driven into her face. Um, and this, um, Sean Cunningham also wanted to include the axe hitting the light as a subconscious way of getting it into your head that the axe is a very real thing. Cool. And I think this uh, this scene kind of reminds me a little bit of like a giallo kill. It kind of has like an Italian feel to it. Well, you know, uh, whether it was Victor Miller or probably Sean Cunningham was influenced by a Mario Bava film. Called, called Bay of Blood or something like oh, yeah. that. We're going to get into that in the second film, actually. I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. No problem. But I, awesome. thought that, I, I thought that axe scene was the best kill of that movie. What do you, what do you, what do you think, Mike? I like Kevin Bacon's scene. I don't know. That axe thing just, oh, man. But at least Kevin, <laughs> but at least Kevin Bacon got a little. Yeah, know? yeah. He, he took a shot late. at the title. And he got high, too. Yeah, he took mm. a shot at the title. And then he got, and then he did a little ganja, and then he died. Shit, I'd rather do that than get an axe through my head. That's right. Not a lot of sex in the first one, by the way. Well, they were. uh, It's everything that leads up to it, and then before it starts, Jason cuts him down. Damn! Damn, Right after that, that would (laughs) piss me off. 
So um, up next on our uh, murder list, we have Brenda, played by Lori Bartram. As, uh, Brenda gets ready for bed and curls up with a book. A childlike voice calls out to her from the storm. Um, unsure if it's a serious call for help, Brenda gives in and heads outside to the rain, uh, into the archery range. It's <laughs> where she's blinded by the sudden lights. She's trapped by the killer and dies off screen. Um, in the script, uh, Brenda's death was originally meant to show an arrow hitting her chest from the archery area. Um, despite popular belief, it was never filmed, but it was implied that she was killed with arrows. Well, sometimes it's what you don't see. That, exactly. that can be scary. I would, I would rather see the arrows. <laughs> You'd rather see the <laughs> Ooh! More gore! Ooh. More gore! Well, you <laughs> kind of get a glimpse of it when Brenda's corpse is later hurled through the window. <laughs> yeah. You could kind of see yeah, a little bit of... Uh, Kind of arrow puncture on her chest a little bit. It's a bloody flesh wound. I was wondering, was this, uh, she kind of hears like footsteps on the roof right before this? Um, our final girl, Alice, she kind of hears like footsteps on the roof. I was wondering, the rope tied around her, does she swing her from the roof? That's what I'm thinking. How the hell did that because happen? Because why else with the, with the rope? So the owner of the camp, Steve Christie, he leaves earlier in the movie to get supplies, but um, later on he returns and is stopped by a blinding flashlight at the Camp Crystal Lake sign. He recognizes the unseen killer who later stabs him. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm glad he was this a one. goof, too. <laughs> a lot of, some of these uh, kills end really abruptly. Like He just uh, he's like, hey, who's that over there? Oh, what are you doing out here? <laughs> <laughs> and then it automatically just goes to sleep. <laughs> The <laughs> <laughs> look on his face is like. <clears throat> so as they're uh, worried by their friends' disappearances, our last two counselors, Alice and Bill, leave the main cabin to investigate. They find the axe in Brenda's bed. They find the phones disconnected and Ned's truck inoperable. When the power goes out, Bill goes to check on the generator. And uh, that's when Bill gets it. Bill Brown. And by the way, he's played by Harry Crosby, who is Bing Crosby's son. No shit. Did you guys know that? Is that who that is? Yeah. Wasn't there some kind of rumor that Bing Crosby beat the shit out of his kids? Was there? I don't know. I don't know much about Bing I, Crosby. I remember they, they made reference to it in Family Guy, I think. Really? Yeah. Wait, is this, well, the, is this the goofy kid that, that played the Indian and the cop told him to stop being such a retard or whatever? No, that was Ned. Oh, well, this guy's an idiot, too. Fuck him. Fuck <laughs> 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 him. I can't even name one Bing Crosby song to go, go sing a Bing, Bing Crosby song. <laughs> you fuck <laughs> So, failing to return, um, our last remaining member of the camp staff, Alice, goes out to investigate and finds Bill's body pinned to the door by several arrows. So now alone, terrified, and knowing someone is killing her friends, Alice barricades herself <laughs> in the cabin. <laughs> this is an awesome death. I was... Yeah, but it was, he's, he's got an arrow in the eye and a neck. <laughs> Just hang out. You might be a serial killer. <laughs> I mean, most people hang their robes or, you know, their kids' jackets. This is a guy with arrows. <laughs> don't you have a guy hanging on the back of your door with arrows? I mean, no, I, I do. I don't want to talk about that, Mike. Okay. <laughs> so that brings us to our next trope. The final girl. Oh, yeah. Mike. Adrian King was like one of the first. Yeah. You want to maybe give a little rundown on like what a final girl is, Mike? It's sure. Pretty simple. But. Final girl is, can be characterized or, you know, described as the final girl in uh, a horror film. She's the survivor, usually. She might go on to do, you know, this sequel, but she is the final victim that who is actually not a victim, who's most likely in slasher films kills the killer and she's the survivor so uh, when, i'd say friday the 13th put slasher films really on the map it was like the start of it that pioneered the whole uh 
genre, and she was one of the most recognizable faces since she was in the first Friday the 13th. She could be called the first final girl. Yeah, they're kind of like the ones that uh, carry on the story. Yes. Tell somebody about it. Mm-hmm. Well, murder she everybody. Who are you going to tell? Adrian King's character, Alice, does appear in part two. Spoiler. She's yeah. in part two. So that was uh, Alice Hardy, played by Adrian King in this movie, is our final girl. You, you know bad. what, though? I got to say, Adrian King, what a great... They picked the perfect all-American girl to play this role. Mm-hmm. And oh, she yeah. was she was hot. What do you think? Mm, uh, I think about she was. Hot, I think she was. Well, it's because I'm a 70s and 80s guy. Well, don't listen to me. <laughs> um, just maybe a little backstory on uh, Alice. She hails from California. She was studying to be an artist with a minor in psychology. You can see her painting all over the movie. Um, Alice abandoned her previous life as well as her relationship with another man to help Steve Christie clean up the camp. Um, in making Friday the 13th, The Legend of Camp Blood, which is a novel, it is implied that Alice was cheating on another man with Steve. However, she was never shown engaging in sex with anyone on screen. Um, in an early script for the second film, Alice discovered she was pregnant and then tells her doctor she had sex with Steve Christie and Bill prior to their deaths, but didn- could not determine who the baby belonged to. Um, script ideas were both scrapped when it was determined that it would have robbed Alice of her chase status, as there's a fan theory that virginity is needed to become the final girl. Can, can I yeah, say something right. about that? Yeah. Can I say something about her? Whore. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the in the novel, yeah. Well, it's kind of implied but during the survived. movie. Yeah. I don't care. She's a whore. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the end of the movie, Alice sees a vehicle pull up and rushes outside, thinking it's Steve. Instead, she's be- greeted by a middle-aged woman who claims to be an old friend of Steve and his family. She reveals herself to be... Mrs. Voorhees, oh, our killer, Pamela. played by uh, Betsy Palmer. And a little bit of uh, backstory on Pamela Voorhees, whose first name, by the way, is not revealed until the final chapter, which is the fourth part. Um, she was a pregnant newlywed living in a trailer in Ohio with her abusive husband, Elias. Uh, she believed that she could actually Walk hear the Elias. thoughts. <laughs> she believed she could actually hear the thoughts of her unborn child instructing her to commit acts of violence, uh, whether this was... Uh, Merely an aspect of a deep-rooted psychosis or some supernatural manipulation is unknown. Um, in September of that year, after suffering another beating and a long series of beatings perpetuated by her husband, she heeded the voice inside her head that told her to kill. And the fate of Eli- Elias is still unknown. There was a script that was coming out that he might be in it. Um, although the comic miniseries Friday the 13th Pamela's Tale shows a pregnant Pamela killing Elias. Um, eventually, Pamela arrived in Crystal Lake, where she pur- purchased a home as she felt that God had called her there. Um, on Friday, June 13th, 1946, uh, Pamela met the Christies, who were reopening a campground out near the lake, then asked her to work for them cooking. Pamela accepted the job and went into labor with Jason the same night, who was born with severe physical deformities. Um, in 1957, 11-year-old Jason Voorhees drowned in Crystal Lake, and the death of her child drove the overprotective Pamela insane. Uh, the camp counselors who had been charged with keeping an eye on him were off making love in the woods. So, yeah, stricken with grief, Pamela took some time away from the camp. In 1958, she begged the Christies for the chance to work at the camp again. And her motivation behind this is unclear, but it may have been sparked by the knowledge that the two negligent counselors who were allowed her son to drown, Barry and Claudette, were once again working at Camp Crystal Lake. So at an unknown time, the water was poisoned. There were several acts of arson that occurred at the camp. Uh, Pamela then avenged her son's death against the two camp counselors who we saw in the beginning um, then she, that she found having sex. So believing that these two reflected the sinful nature of all 
whose actions allowed her son to die. In 1979, she returned to Camp Crystal Lake to continue a reign of terror and to stop the camp from being opened again. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, you know, I want to talk about her. I want to talk about Mrs. Voorhees. That was a crazy bitch. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah. because, because the story, as, as, as my nephew read, the storyline story in the mo- actual movie was the murders, then uh, was it the water was polluted, and then the fires? Or was it the fires, then the water was polluted? Every year it was something really drastic. I think it was poison first. It was poison first. Yeah, yeah. They, they, she poisoned the water. And by the way, that wrecks, um, that's not um, just straight out of the novel. That's all uh, in the beginning. The truck driver wrecks Everhart. Right, he right, says right. All he this. Say, right. He says that. And then they, I, I want to say, doesn't the sheriff bring that up later, Sam? Yeah. If I remember correctly. But, but, but the point I'm trying to get to is, you know, it wasn't in it wasn't in the script, and a lot of people won't talk about it. But did you, was it just me? Did you guys notice that uh, she was a badass lady? Because because uh, she got hit with a bat, a pan, uh, a oar when they're outside by the canoe. Oh, they wrestle. I they mean, beat, they, yeah, they they, 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 they duke it out. Yeah, they duke it out, and she got the shit, and she just gets right back up. Uh-huh. I like um in the scene where she's explaining all this too. Too crazy to like, feel pain. Yeah. yeah, she. That's the moment I was saying. She really seems crazy because there's a moment where she's like explaining all this, and she goes, uh, "Jason uh, <laughs> wasn't a strong swimmer." And she kind of laughs while he says it. <laughs> I'm like, "Damn, dude, that was the, like little nuances like that." She's like, "Holy shit." <laughs> Because I have to admit, when you were reading, when you were reading that point where the kids were having sex and he was out there drowning, if I hear "Hey, hey," and I'm trying to take a shot at the title, I'm sorry, that kid's gonna drown. <laughs> all, all I would do is turn Jason the music didn't up have louder. A it's like paddle, I'm about to shoot. <laughs> Wait, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, un, un, you know, unload here. Listen to the fog act. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait. Fog that was in the '40s. Jason drowned in the '40s. Yeah. Fog just, wasn't around. No, I'm just saying me. If that was me and I was going to shut up the title, they were listening and to, I'd be listening to the Foghead, and yeah. you'd hear, Slow ride. Help me. <laughs> hey, fuck you, man. I'm getting this. <laughs> listening to Slow Ride. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, in 1980, the slasher film hadn't yet begun experimenting with the killer's gender in an effort to mislead audiences. Um, as later films such as Happy Birthday to Me and Sleepaway Camp yes. would. Yet, Sean Cunningham made his killer a woman, casting Betsy Palmer in the pivotal role, because audience was would never suspect that this wholesome actress might be the killer. You talked before, you've seen a couple things that she's been in, like someone... I, I mean, she's, uh, prior to Friday the 13th, uh, from what I've been told, she was in a lot of like TV shows where she just always played like a nice, sweet woman. That's what I had. Someone had said uh, she was like the Katie Couric of her time, and I was like, that, that sounds like a weird... Well, Katie Couric's <laughs> not an actress. That's what right? I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. yeah I was... hmm. But wholesome like that, I wholesome. guess. I mean, yeah. So, still, Cunningham doesn't allow the audiences an impartial perspective and implements unmistakable visual cues to convince the audience that the killer is a man. Uh, she drives a pickup truck, wears beaten work boots, possesses enough strength to fashion her victims in compromising positions and hurl through windows... Um, and she's adept with both a hunting knife, axes, and spears. Um, but when her identity is finally revealed, it's not only a shock to our expectations within the context of this specific film, but our previous expectations of the entire subgenre. I mean, it could have been yeah. a woman or a guy. Flannel and shirt. was awesome. Big mm-hmm. combat boots. But, but let me ask you something. I did hear something years back. Uh, Mike, I'm going to ask you this. There was, a, there was a reason why they included showing her hand with the high school ring. 
Did you hear anything about that? Oh, okay. Um, I think that was part of Betsy Palmer's like uh, was that Betsy Palmer's that she made up. Was that what it is? Because yeah. I remember, uh, I remember she brought up the ring, and I'm like, "What is she talking about?" I didn't even catch that. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. "What is she talking about?" But I watched the first one again yesterday, and I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute! I gotta ask the guys about that ring mm-hmm. because if you remember in the one scene they showed it." I don't even recall. That's yeah. that's that's cool. Yeah. Little little, it, little movie secrets like that, folks. You got to pay attention. But to. but but it was her her high school ring, Sam. Um, but, uh, I don't know Betsy if it was Palmer? her actual one, but that's like yeah, the, the story characters. behind it is is the character. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. The first thing she said was she went in to read the script, and even before they gave it to her, Savini stops her. I got to take a model of your head. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there was a, there's a panel that I was watching too where it's funny where um, Betsy Palmer is sitting right next to Victor Miller, and she's like, "I read the script, and I thought this is a piece of shit." And like <laughs> you can see Victor Miller, and he's like. Now That's I the one know. I sent you. Thank you. Is that the one I sent you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. But I'd heard funny. her say that before, but never sitting like right next to the guy who wrote the script. <laughs> yeah, but especially you know, for a movie that became, you know, like what old, it is. old people can say anything they want, and we just think it's funny. <laughs> right. Right. But, well, she's she's awesome about it now. She's like, you know, that did so much for my career and stuff. But it's like, it's just funny to hear her say that type of shit. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because that was hilarious, man. If I was in that audience, I would have lost it. There was a, a great story Betsy Palmer tells in Crystal Lake Memories about really hitting Adrian King. By the way, she says she came from a stage background. She goes, uh, during our first fight scene, uh, she goes, I just hauled off and cracked Adrian in the face super hard. <laughs> so Adrian freaked out and she started calling for the director, Sean, Sean, and. Sean Cunningham had to come in and explain to her, like, yo, like, this isn't the theater. Like, here, you miss her. And then we put in the sound effect in post-production. Yep. Stage <laughs> combat, man. Victor Miller has admitted that the mother-son relationship is pretty much just a reversal on Alfred Hitchcock's psycho. And that Pamela is crazy. She knows it. And she doesn't care. Um, the scene where she runs out of the, of the cabin there and starts, you know, basically telling her, she starts talking as Jason. Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away, Mommy. Don't let her live. I won't, Jason. I won't. Crazy. It's also important when you realize that the score has been setting you up the entire time with the yeah. ki ki wah, wah. Yeah. That's That whole time, that's basically just uh, the sound effects up, uh, from the killer's point of view of Jason telling Betsy Palmer to kill all the kids. Yeah. And what is it, what is it really saying, Mike? Kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. Yeah. Kill, it's yeah. not, it, every, a lot of people, because it sounds like it's j j j ha 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 Harry Manfredini, uh, the way he intended it to sound was kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. And I think they, they switched it, like, for some of the later yeah, films. I, yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I remember, yeah, being going back like to the first one, like you know, years and years back or whatever, and being surprised that it was actually Key Ma. But um, yeah, let's talk about Harry Manfredini for a little bit. Uh, another aspect of the film which played no small role in its success was Harry Manfredini's haunting score. For sure. Although, although his background includes work as a jazz musician, his name is most closely associated with the Friday the 13th films, having scored nine entries for the series over the years. Uh, Manfredini credits Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldfuss for goldsmith for some inspirations um i've always heard john williams jaws vibes as well from the first one you get that all those scratchy strings but a main source of his widespread influence is krizatov penderecki a polish composer um harry says that's how he came up with the key 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 thing it's essentially a mashup of uh penderecki's utsnia 
And uh, Bet- Betsy Palmer's Killer Mommy, which includes the much-analyzed vocal effect, which later installments of the series became used to signify Jason's presence in the scene. Um, the effect was a combination of the heavy breathing, like we were saying, the chanting usually affected the key and the ma sound spoken by Manfredini, and then run through an echoplex, which is uh, basically just Ooh. this yeah, crazy um, <clears throat> a looper, basically. Mm-hmm. Cool yeah. processing yeah. equipment. Yeah, but yeah. When, when I was watching one yesterday with the score, uh, it really made me think, and I'm not saying it was, but it really made me think of this exact same score from... Um, the reanimator there was oh, yeah. quite a few scenes where it, it to me anyway it, it was pretty close yeah reanimator has that awesome card it's like yeah i know we brought this up in one of our other podcasts but i'm, I'm telling you when you have the when you have the music added you know like my nephew mentioned jaws that dun, 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 oh, i mean that, that really really adds to it i mean you know it you know, this guy was magnificent. The magnificent pick to play the play the score yeah. in, in these movies. And uh, Krzysztof Penderecki, by the way, is a Polish composer. He does a lot of classical music, but it's all fucking terrifying and frightening. Uh, yes. People yes. who don't know his work, um, I know you've heard it. He's, he's in The Shining. He's got like six oh. songs in there. Okay. Think of the end when she's mm, running through the mm, end of the hotel and she's oh, encountering yeah. all the ghosts and everything. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, the, da, 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 that's uh, Wendy Carlos. But um, Krzysztof Penderecki is all, when you think of all those scratchy, you you know, like yes. the, and also like the, oh, right. Yeah. And again, and yeah. again, us as an audience, classical really, music can be frightening. Yeah. It really doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. Look at, um, uh, Star Wars. The, the, I mean, they actually showed them, uh, creating the score. Man, they had like how many people in, the, in that band? Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. John it was Williams. Ridiculous. Amazing. It's, it's, it was ridiculous. Um, how one many. of his famous tracks, um, I know it's called Therenity for the Victims of Hiroshima, which I, you would definitely know if you if you heard it, but it's in all those movies where like things are extremely terrifying, extremely quick. Right. Like mm-hmm. uh, there was an episode of Twin Peaks. I don't know. Do you guys have you guys ever seen that? I, I when I was little, I watched the original series. Yeah, there was a well, the new one that just came out. There was an amazing fucking scene where they do like the first like nuclear explosion bomb blast, and they use that scene as they like zoom in on the nuclear explosion, like really slow motion. It's fucking awesome. Definitely check that out. Yeah, so, that, that music, man. I'm telling that, you, without it. That's right. Uh, one of my favorite uh, record labels, Waxwork. Yes. Um, they've released um, eight of the films so far, and takes up uh, or it goes up to Jason takes Manhattan. But the most of impressive so far that they've released, hands down, the Bloodfield record. Oh, cool! And, and, and what was the it. and what was the vinyl you wanted? Uh, was it Chucky? Was oh, Child's Play? Yeah, it came out today, Sammy. Yeah. Now, Thank wh- you, Waxwork. Wh- which which one which one was it? The original? Um, they did Child. Today they came out with a Child's Play two, which is um. Yeah, it was like a special variant that they had. There was only like 500 of them pressed. I was actually able to grab one of them. Oh, you did get it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think they actually sold out now, though. They're, yeah, wow. they, they all sold out. Wow. A lot of the Friday the 13th ones are uh, sold out right now. They actually just did a repress of um, Jason Takes Manhattan that released today, actually. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if it's Friday the 13th or, or Mike's favorite, um, uh, The Exorcist. Man, that, that music just, oh, my God. Just oh, yeah. that alone. Uh, if I listen to that, just that. It scares the shit out. Yeah, scores can can get underneath your skin like that. Like I'll, I'll give you a good example: the opening credits of Insidious. Oh, no yeah, strings. Yeah. Those violin yeah. strings. Violin strings. Yeah. Oh, That's kind of like a Penderecki type deal. Yeah. It'll make your, the hair on your back, your neck stand up. Yeah. Is that uh that was uh Joseph Bashara, I think was the composer for that one. Right. Yeah. Oh, for uh, Insidious. Yeah, Insidious. He did um. Conjuring. Oh, the Conjuring. Yeah. Yeah. He, he works with James Wan. 
He did another awesome one uh, featuring aliens, uh, Dark Skies. I don't know if you've seen that one before. It's got Carrie Russell yes. in it. Okay. That was a terrifying uh, alien movie. Yeah. Kind of like a home invasion thriller, too. Yes. So, getting back to Friday the 13th at the end of the movie. Catfight! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a big, um, giant catfight that goes on at the end of the movie. Betsy Palmer in this doesn't really seem like Ooh, the menacing killer that she dirty. was for the rest of the movie, does she? Well, I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, as soon as she starts flipping out, you, you see like how powerful this, this woman is. Oh, yeah. And then we got the slow motion scene of... Uh, Which is awesome. Yeah, Pamela Voorhees slowly getting decapitated. And see if you can see right here, Mike, you see the uh, the ring on her finger? Now I do. Yeah, yeah the class okay. ring. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's two scenes. Because she was in the forest looking through the, the trees when they when I initially spotted the ring, and now this one. I'm sorry, I, I missed that... That, that last one, yeah. yeah. You know what? They also show it a couple different times when she's in the, when she's in the truck um, with Annie in the beginning when she's giving her a lift. That's when uh, you know we missed that turn back there. I gotta and, I gotta look at that again. And I mean, then yeah, when she slits the throat, I think you can right, see it. Right. Yeah. So that was like a big visual cue. There's also I heard there's some part where um, Betsy Palmer is in the background of like a diner scene somewhere because they figured like we can't just have her pop in like she's got to be in the movie somewhere. I think she's in the beginning, but I never I in, didn't in lock that part down. Oh, wow. Yeah, gotta like, for that. I yeah, watch, uh, yeah. See, either so in the beginning of the town, you know, she's like getting groceries or something, or she's seated at the counter. I forget. I didn't actually see that when I was watching it, but I read that later on. Interesting. Yeah. There was um, also a great uh, story that Betsy Palmer tells in uh, Crystal Lake Memories where uh, she goes up to the set and, like you were saying, with Tom Savini, he comes over, hey, you want to do a mold real quick? You want to see how we're going to cut your head off? And she's like, <laughs> she's like, no, I could care less how you're going to cut my head off. <laughs> <laughs> but that was another awesome scene where, um, yeah, the, so in that scene there where she's she gets her head decapitated and she's grabbing for the head, that's actually uh, Tom Savini's assistant, uh, Tazos. I forget his, how you say his Stop last Rockus. name. Yeah, Stavrakis yeah. or something. He, he's worked with Savini on a billion movies. Yeah, so that was uh, Tom Savini was is the one that cut the head off, which is a, another awesome uh, effect that they did. They basically, like, stuck a head on toothpicks, and Tom Savini, like, made the whole inside of the neck, like, real anatomically correct i guess you could say oh okay yeah from all of his combat experience so then you know and you could see, see this. the toothpicks look at the see, yeah. you could see you could actually see them yeah mm -hmm. so you could see like yeah all this nasty you know like her spine in there and everything all this nasty <laughs> shit when he cuts her head off so so tom savini <laughs> was actually had the machete yeah and his and his partner was actually uh um uh, mrs Voorhees. Yeah. yeah yeah so they did another <laughs> one of those things again you know where they made like a fake torso Right. And then uh, well, I think he was actually like bent over you, or something you know what? like that. Now, you can see the hair at, on his hands. You can see the hair on yeah. his knuckles. Yeah. yeah, that's what everybody <laughs> wow. talks about, the hairy hands. Yeah, Betsy, see, no, Betsy Palmer says that too. She's like, my hands aren't hairy. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of well, people wouldn't hey. notice that. Stavrakis sounds yeah. Greek to me. Greek people are hairy. I'm very, sorry, but it's very. true. <laughs> yeah, but who would notice that? You know, I mean, uh, and, and I love. got to look close. And I love when stuff like that comes out, you know. Like Sam said, you know, she was in a cafeteria somewhere. I mean, now I'm going to have to go and look at it. You know, because little stuff like that, I, I dig stuff like that. Yeah. A little trivia. <laughs> yeah. It'd be great if it's not true and we're all just watching yeah. it three, four times. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, after the final fight scene, Alice gets in a canoe and uh, paddles out to the middle of the lake where she falls asleep. Um, morning comes. Alice is still asleep in the canoe. Police arrive and call out to her. She awakens. As she sits up and contemplates her rescue, the decomposing corpse of Pamela's son, Jason, attacks Alice. 
pulls her screaming hysterically out of the canoe and into the water. As she's dragged under, she wakes in the hospital. Um, when she asks about Jason, please inform her that they never found any boy at the lake. Ari so, Lehman. That's right, that's Ari Lehman. And uh, as we talked about, uh, Harry Manfredini also, this that's a big, the score right here is a big part in setting up the end of this movie. It's like, you, from the score alone, you think, oh, it's happy, everything's over, and then boom, Jason. Yep. And a funny thing I've from watching some of these documentaries is like everybody tries to take credit for oh I put that scene in the end of the movie or I told them the yeah well it, it's an awesome jump scare and it's mm. a great effect every like three or four different people I know Sean Cunningham Tom Savini all say like oh we well we just seen um, Carrie mm. and there's that part right. at the end where there's a the scene yeah where yeah you where know, it took a long time yeah you know which is which is smart you know you you wait you wait you wait. And then you're thinking, okay, nothing's gonna happen. And yeah. the next, you know, something happens. Right. I would give anything to be like be back in that time period to oh, experience this stuff for the I'm first time. Because now everybody knows every. Oh well, it could One be this part at the end. Scare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back then, you like they said people would be leaving the theater like about this time, and like as you know, as you're midway down the row or something, Jason pops out. You fuck. <laughs> <God damn it. laughs> You gotta sit still until you see the credits. Exactly. So as we talked about um, earlier, that little boy was Ari Lehman, first actor to play Jason Voorhees. He was in uh, Manny's Orphans before. He pretty much just got this role because he was the right size for the part. So mm. how old was he when he did uh, the first Jason? Uh, he was a teenager, I think. He was yeah, I think yeah. he said 12 or something like that. No, he's a little older than that. Hmm. Today being Friday the 13th, first Jason is performing in my hometown of Brookfield, Illinois, at one of the largest arcades in the country called Galloping Ghost. His band, First Jason, playing tonight. Can't wait. Awesome. I've, I've seen his band play before. They rock. He's the master of the guitar. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be out there with his gloves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably. And his machete and his giant guitar. He's, his, his guitar is shaped like a machete. He's got like a prop on it. Oh, is that right? Oh, man, that's yeah. awesome. Nice. Nice. Um, I also found another, just a short story about Betsy Palmer. Um, she says, like, she was looking through some Polaroids at one part on the set, and she said, well, who's this? And they said, oh, well, that's your son. She said, why does he look like that? And they go, well, he's a mongoloid. She said, what? he's a what? <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. She said, that wasn't in the script. <laughs> but I, I just love, like, her mannerism. She goes, he's a what? Oh, no. A mongoloid. <laughs> You ever hear that song by Devo? Mongoloid, he was a mongoloid. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Well, that's pretty much going to conclude uh, part one. We got a body Yay. count of 11, including uh, Pamela Voorhees in that. Awesome. Ten dead teenagers and Mrs. Voorhees. Best slasher ever. <laughs> and that was, uh, was it one night? Right? Yeah, it was over one, oh, one yeah. night. Over one, outside of the first very two kills, right. it was one night. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So when the film was finished and screened, a bidding war erupted between Paramount, Warner Brothers, and United Artists, with the film eventually landing at Paramount under the head of distribution at the time, Frank Mancuso. Um, he decided to take a chance and open the film nationally, despite the fact that there was no recognizable faces or names attached to the project. And it was risked that, among many others, would eventually seat Frank at the head of Paramount Studios. Um, Friday the 13th opened on... 1,127 screens on May 9th, 1980, and topped the box office with a three-day opening gross of $5.8 million. But even more remarkable to observers was the film's staying power, unusual for a horror film whose receipts traditionally declined after its opening weekend. 
Friday the 13th remains the second only behind The Empire Strikes Back as the top money earner of the summer and would go on to best such high-profile major studio rivals as Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, which also came out that same year. Um, by the end of its run, Friday the 13th would pull in, pull in an impressive $39.7 million, which for those days was like a Marvel movie. Yeah. Mm. That's crazy. What did you guys think? Did you ever see Dress to Kill? I, what yeah. Dickinson? Yeah. Because there was, there was, there was the remake, right? Because uh, it didn't Hitchcock do the first Dress to Kill? No. Not that I know of. Yeah, that was with Angie Dickinson in the beginning. Yeah, the, the, the one, yeah. The, mm. the, the, Cock-hungry Michael. Angie Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> That's all she wants in the movie. Yeah. I mean, she's getting laid throughout that entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was a weird, yeah, that's also a movie that kind of plays with gender a whole lot. Yeah, because mm. Michael Caine, that's the first time they're, I, I've ever heard, well, that was, what, 1980? Didn't, did they use the word transgender? No, not transgender, transsexual, sorry. Yeah, but maybe not yeah. transgender back in the No, not transgender. Tra- it's transsexual. Uh, transsexual. Uh, yeah. Because Michael Caine was the psychologist. Yeah. And then there, then the other doctors had said, well, he was a transsexual. And then she's like, what? You know, and that, that's when uh first time I ever heard that stuff. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did Brian De Palma direct Carrie? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. And, okay. and actually, actually, his kid was the kid on the bike. Oh, crazy Gary, crazy Gary. Yeah, crazy Gary. That was his son, yeah. He had a good, whole out. run of good films in there. Uh, what was it, Body Double? Yeah. yeah. Great. Got, yeah Bar- with, uh, got Barbara Melanie, Crampton in it. Mm. Wasn't Melanie Griffith in that, in Body Double? Yeah. There's that guy, there's a, that actor. He looks exactly like Bill Maher, but he's somebody else. <laughs> oh, that guy, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I kept thinking it was Bill, it was Bill Maher, but. Bill Maher lookalike. <laughs> All right, so I'm jumping in the Friday the 13th Part 2. Here we go, Part 2. So the task of continuing the Friday the 13th saga fell to Steve Miner, making his directorial debut. Uh, Miner would also helm the next installment of the series, 1982's Friday the 13th Part 3. He had been a production assistant on The Last House on the left. Um, He also earned an associate producer credit on the original Friday the 13th. Um, throughout the course of part three, he implements almost every horror cliche. The ring phone with no one on the other end, uh, the cat jumping through the window, the prophet of doom, the head, head in the refrigerator gag. But because he knows exactly when and for how long to use these bits, they never lose their power to shock and delight. So the screenplay was written by Ron Kurse and is less a sequel than a remake of the original. Nonetheless, it is a seminal entry in the series, first to utilize Jason Voorhees as the killer, as he begins to carry out his revenge for the death of, death of his mother, as well as continue her mission to keep the camp and the area closed for good to prevent another drowning. So, um, as we were saying before, Tom Savini didn't return for this film. He uh, was working on The Burning instead, which is an awesome camp movie. Great slasher. Yeah, definitely recommend that one. That has a bunch of stars in that one, too. Um, what's his name? George Costanza. I forget Jason his real name. Alexander. Jason Alexander. Oh, Jason Alexander. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Holly Hunter. Man, was he young in that. Uh, Fisher Stevens. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Holly Hunter. I forgot about her. Yeah. It was in that one. So um, when the filmmakers asked Adrian King to reprise her role as Alice, she said she wanted to be on screen for a short period of time because of an obsessed fan who was stalking her. Um, he had broken into an apartment. She feared for her life. Um, there was also a crazy thing I heard where, like, this guy broke in and put a gun to her head. There was, like, a whole hostage situation that went on. So, yeah, uh, following the release of uh, the first movie, she had numerous encounters with these obsessive fans. 
Um, a situation escalated into a stalker case and she decided to avoid any further acting opportunities. Turning that into a vantage that she wasn't going to return, Steve Miner surprised audiences by having Jason kill off Alice, the lone survivor of the original. This set the stage for the anything goes mentality of the rest of the film in which Jason kills, among others, a paraplegic and a couple <laughs> in the middle of lovemaking, um, which is a blatant ripoff scene of Mario Bava's 1971 film, A Bay of Blood. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Miner is also well aware of the comparison and cites it as more as an homage than anything else. Um, it's not really anything sinister. After all, this series needs no help in coming up with creative ways to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> when that guy got it in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're gonna, doesn't it doesn't like fall downstairs? Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're gonna, yeah. I, I wish they would have showed him pushing him down the chair. <laughs> <laughs> so... Two months after the events of the first film, Alice Hardy is now living alone, having nightmares, uh, received phone calls with no one on the other end, like we said. She hears a noise from her kitchen and arms herself with an ice pick, but is scared by her cat when she goes to get food. She sees Pamela Voorhees' rotted head in her fridge, then an adult Jason Voorhees comes and stabs her in the temple with an ice pick. This is um, a little bit of like a Michael Myers-esque of this. Like, how the fuck did he get to her apartment? It yeah. said she lives in California earlier. So he got to New Jersey to California. Jason went on tour. He's he on the hitched. road. He hitched. He's on the road. <laughs> yeah. We also get that iconic um, thing in the beginning, Friday the 13th, only this time it fucking explodes. <laughs> Part two. I thought it was a good effect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we go through our... Uh, Comfy setup in the beginning, meeting our new gang. It isn't long before we meet a familiar face, our prophet of doom. Ralph. Crazy Ralph. <laughs> so we uh, get a shot of some boots. We think it might be Jason, but uh, it's actually Ralph. Ralph. After warning some new counselors in town, Crazy Ralph makes his way to their place again, where he's peeping on two teenagers, probably about to yank his crank. Oh, yeah. But before he can, <laughs> but before he can continue. Before he can get his pants unzipped, should I say, Jason garrotes him with a lace of barbed wire against a tree. So long, Ralph. <laughs> That's what you get. Uh, you know what? I'm glad he got it. What the fuck? Get, get out of here, old man. <laughs> <Even> John. <laughs> about to whip it out. This is a typical Friday night for him. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but this time, he got choked out on the tree. That's right. That's what happens. You guys ever seen um, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley? Oh, yeah. yeah all I, yeah, all I think yeah. about when I hear peepers are... Um, What's his name? Um, he passed away. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour. How's the peeping? Tommy, how's the peeping? That's great. I like so him, I like him from Boogie Nights. Crazy Ralph. <laughs> Boogie Nights. He's Scott. He's like, can I kiss you on your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just wrong, dude. And his he's shirt like, was too tight for him. Oh, he has way too tight. <laughs> he's always doing the sound, and when he sees Mark uh, Wahlberg's dick, he's oh. like, he's like, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just in his pants. I wonder if he got that in. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So um, a little later on, uh, we got a Deputy Winslow. He uh, glimpses Jason dart off into the woods. He follows him, but he loses track before finding the killer's decrepit home in a room uh, containing the corpse of Alice. He's also got uh, his he's got, mother's head. Yeah, he's got the head inside there. Um, so horrified, Jason, I'm um, sorry, Winslow is taken by surprise when Jason attacks him from behind, stabbing him in the back of the head with a claw hammer. There you go. Yeah, that's right. You, you know what I liked? You know what I liked about this film, the second one? They incorporated uh, quite a bit of it happening during the day. Mm. You've <laughs> got to be one hell of a writer slash director to, to make a horror film and and have quite a bit of it going on during the day. Well, it's important to see the shoes, because if you recall correctly, uh, in probably the first one, second one, people are running. They're terrified. They're being chased. And Jason is just walking. Right. 
but right. he's keeping up with them. <laughs> right. No, good point. Good point. But 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 I do have to ask you guys. I know I'm jumping the gun here. Only only my dumbass would, would ask this. How do how do you guys explain it to me? If I remember correctly, because I watched one and two and three yesterday, how did the hot chick here? How did uh, she had that dog? And one of the other campers found that same dog. Was it the same dog that was split open? And and they said, oh, my God, I seen a dog out there, and it was something got to it. And then at the end, the dog comes back in the cabin. Oh, right, right. I think it was a different dog. Was it a different dog? Because yeah. it, like it sure looked like the same damn dog. Different one, because they know they know its name, and they're all happy to see it. Right. Well, it doesn't matter, because... <laughs> Although, you know what? That might be... You know, in the end there, that's kind of like a dream sequence. Was it was a dream? Okay. So it might not okay. be... Yeah, it might be the same dog. Yeah. Or it could have been like lunch for Jason. Yeah, because that, that little dog irritated the shit out of me. I'm, what did I'm, Jason eat all these yeah. years? He, they said, like, dogs, uh, dogs rabbits, uh, deer. He, was, he wasn't eating anything. Jason, uh, yum, yum. So, uh, <laughs> this movie also has a. This is where we start to get more like blatant sexual shit in there. Like the uh, this chick um, Terry, she just like takes off all of her clothes and gets in the lake. Yeah, that's when, that's when Jason's doing some peeping. We get a, <laughs> we get a POV shot on that. <laughs> so um, her boyfriend Scott later has his uh, throat slit with a machete while caught in a rope trap. Um, <laughs> then uh, Terry is killed off screen when she finds Scott's dead body. That was um, that's another part in the movie, kind of like Steve Christie's death, where she runs and then it's just ah! and it's <laughs> it cuts to uh, cuts to the next scene where they're in the bar. <laughs> so. Next up, we got this guy's name is Mark Jarvis. I couldn't find anything that says he's related to any of the other Jarvis people. Oh, right. But um, yeah, basically, Mark the Cripple. Mark was injured in a motorcycle accident when a girl asked him if everything works down there. He replies that his dick don't work, but he could eat pussy like a champ. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is also what I love about the series is that it does not discriminate. They kill everyone regardless of skin tone, <laughs> sexual orientation. Uh, pregnant woman and handicapable ass eaters like Mark here. <laughs> I have to admit that scene was funny when he got the machete in the head and then his the wheelchair goes on the stairs. Handicapable <laughs> ass eater. You brought up a funny thing though. I never noticed. It was probably from the machete hit, but you think Jason threw his ass down the fucking stairs? Because <laughs> <laughs> look where he's at. He's on. Is he on the porch? How did he get yeah. to the porch? All the way. See, look. Now watch. He goes down the stairs. Okay. Now, how the hell? Boom, those boom, stairs boom, were boom, not boom, right there. No. No. Jason had to take his ass and throw him down the stairs. <laughs> but I but I wish they wouldn't have froze it there. I wish they would have shown him going all the way down and hitting the floor. <laughs> Dude, you handy-capable ass-eater is the best thing you've ever seen. <laughs> That's the name of my second band, Handy Capable Ass Eaters, right. dude. I, now, see, I thought... Sam Samino and the Handy Capable Ass Eaters, <laughs> dude. That's catchy. Now, now let's, let's go back a little. So, Sammy, he... Was it in the script? Did he actually say nothing works down there? I, I, thought, I thought he did, because I remember her getting ready... And they were going to get ready to go have sex. Yeah, she says something. Was, he doesn't say I could eat pussy like a champ, oh, no, obviously. No, I know that. But, but I he does know say, that. Yeah, he, say, he says something like, oh, there's other ways I get it done or something like oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Because I, 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 I. A little I, improvisation I on your part, huh? Yeah. No, I know he didn't say that, but I thought, you know, maybe I missed something where he said, hey, you know, nothing works from below, you know, which would piss me off. But, you know, whatever. You know what? This one's a little bit of a bummer because Mark's a nice guy, but I do like in, in movies when the when handicapped people get fucking murdered. 
when they're when they're when they're assholes when they're assholes i should add that texas chainsaw yeah. franklin yeah like hannibal there's that pedophile motherfucker oh, yeah. you know gary oldman's character is the fucked up they feed him to the pigs oh yeah and actually in the tv show um they they throw him in his uh in his swimming pool that's because he's uh he's he can't move at all they throw him in the tank with the eels and the eel swims in his mouth oh nice yeah but if you remember when she was getting ready to get it on with this guy in a wheelchair she sprayed perfume on on, on the on her on her you know Chucha? mrs hoo-ha and and i'm like man wouldn't that have burned <laughs> if it's got alcohol yeah, it's like, I mean, <laughs> you would hurt <laughs> so as we brought up earlier um a bay of blood this is um two scenes were Mario from Bob. part two that drew criticism for being ripoffs of uh 1971's bay of blood one of them being the death scene we just mentioned um in bay of blood a wealthy harris is killed by her husband who wants control of her fortunes which is erroneously deemed suicide triggering a train reaction of brutal killings as relatives and friends attempt to reduce the inheritance playing field which is complicated by some teenagers who decide to camp out in a dilapidated building on the estate so the first uh, scene from that which um is kind of a rip off of the wealthy era she's in a wheelchair um she comes over her <laughs> husband uh, slips a noose over her head kicks the wheelchair out from under her <laughs> And uh, she, she basically hangs to death because her legs don't work. Yeah, that's yeah, all. Why did they gotta show the wheelchair rolling back? That's the funny. The, the funniest part that is the scene goes on for actually a pretty long time. They kept the, like a minute, minute and a half. They keep showing her strangling, and they keep showing the wheels on the the wheelchair slowly turning less and less. Yeah, but in Friday the Thirteenth Part Part Two. When that guy in the wheelchair got it, I wish they would have got him in the back of the head instead of in the front. I think it would have been funnier if he would have got him in the back. The oh. back is the front is so much better. That's what the other. That's what the second scene from A Bay of Blood is from. This uh, Italian dude just gets uh, sliced as soon as he opens this fucking door. It's great. Oh, grazie Mario Bava. That's Thank you good. very yeah, much. Watch the wheelchair, Mike. Look, watch. <laughs> there it goes. In. Watch it. The wheels are still rolling. Watch. Come on. <laughs> You're out of your mind today, man. <laughs> this is an everyday thing. With <laughs> so the next uh, blatant ripoff scene from uh, A Bay of Blood is um, a part where two people are making love and a killer comes in and sticks a spear through them. This one is a little uh, little more elongated in A Bay of Blood, probably because they didn't have to deal with censors. This is also, a, I well, think, it's definitely the better scene of the two. Correct me if I'm wrong. They did this maybe a few times in Friday the 13th. I know in part eight. The couple got oh, harpooned. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Right? Or, the, or just the, just the guy got harpooned. Yeah, a harpooned. Yeah, there's they do it a bunch of times in the. They also do the same one, uh, Kevin Bacon death over and over. Yeah. Like where they stab people from over and under through the neck. Yeah. See, that's that's why I wouldn't be a good slasher maniac guy because if I seen hot naked chicks, you know something's gonna happen and I'm not gonna kill them. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be uh, like a old crazy Ralph over there peeping. He's yeah. <laughs> got You're a death doomed. <laughs> See, I, I would get caught right away. My first kill, I would be getting caught. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the scene from um, in Friday the 13th Part 2, Jason barges, barges in the room and impales Jeff and Sandra with the spear, which penetrates them and then through the bed and into the floor. Um, in the future, this prompts Rob Deere, who is Sandra's older brother and appears in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, to seek revenge against Jason. If you, uh, you guys remember that? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember that. Trying to connect the two. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's been a while. Wait, wait. Yeah. Say that we'll again. Get into it so later. so the, the, girl, the girl here, her brother? Yeah, the girl who's in this scene, um, that's uh, in Friday the 13th, part four, there's a guy named Rob Dyer who shows up uh, basically looking for Sandra. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. 
Yeah, one thing to point out between um like two, three, and four, I think they all happen on like the same weekend. They all happen one day after after another, don't they? I don't remember. Pretty said I don't. That's a weird how it happens on Friday the thirteenth. Well, but I'm pretty no. sure it happens. Well, no, because. I know two starts off right away. After, yeah, I mean, I mean, three starts off right away was, after two. How many was Corey Feldman in? Just the one? He was just in four, yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, then I, maybe you're right. Yeah. So, Vicky returns and goes upstairs to investigate, but only finds uh, Jeff and Sandra dead. And Jason, who is now shown clad in a burlap sack over his head and overalls, um, Jason slashes Vicky's right leg uh, with a butcher knife and um, corners her. I like to call him Tater Sack Jason. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's got a fucking There's potato something sack about on his sack. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is the first time we see Jason, by the way, in the whole, or his face, by the way, in the whole thing. I think this scene is a little bit more like a, this is like the epitome of a slasher film here. He's got the butcher knife. It comes out. The way he moves towards her all slow is really slow. It's kind of like Halloween. Mm-hmm. This, this whole s- series kind of rips off Halloween numerous times, I think. Well, that's where, that's where, uh, Cunningham got this from was Halloween. Yeah, they pretty that's much. What, that's, that's what, uh, yeah. you know, he inspired him. That's uh, what I Yeah, he pretty much wanted to cash in on the success Cause, cause look, of Halloween. Look at this scene. We're looking at uh, Jason with a knife in his hand, and that's the exact same scene when he stabbed his sister in Halloween. Mm-hmm. Similar. It's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. so, so, so close. I think I even uh, read a thing about Victor Miller saying that too. Is yeah. like when he they were about to like write this, and he had no horror experience, so he like right. went and watched Halloween and stuff. Right. And he found out like that's the. The whole formula is like you got to have a tragedy that happens before the movie, and then you got to have a bunch of teenagers that you and, can kill off. And you know, yeah. as a horror fan, that's okay with me. You know, I know I don't like, you know, we mentioned before, I don't like remakes, but I do. I mean, I mean, sometimes sometimes you have to take uh, other other situations from other movies and maybe spice them up a little or copy them, whatever. You know, it all comes down to the same thing. It, it, we're being entertained. You know, I mean, people read too much into things. But but I do like the similarities. You know, on some of the slasher movies we watch, I know Sam had brought up before with Michael Myers, how did he learn how to drive? Uh, you know, <laughs> my, my thing is... He just did. <laughs> just there's gotta shut be, up and just deal with it. Well, my point is there's got to be some kind of subconscious, subconscious to these slasher guys that are invulnerable, uh, unbeatable. Uh, you know, they, they, there's we still have to remember, too, they're human. So, you know, I'm assuming... Like with Jason, you know, Sammy said he was a mongoloid. <laughs> I didn't use the word mongoloid. <laughs> That's a great movie. Which, which I think is, I, I don't know, something about that mongoloid. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, I mean, he had to have some kind of sense to him. You know, like 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 I said, that's a show of respect. Candles hey, has if, always been a show of respect. If Michael Myers can learn how to drive a station wagon, what's what's your excuse, old people? Hmm? What is your fucking excuse? All right, so um, you're saying putting on Mrs. Voorhees' sweater and grabbing a machete when Jason breaks down the door with a with a pickaxe, Jenny manages to trick him, pretending to be his mother. But um, despite Jason showing hesitation to follow her demands, Ginny gets uh, Jason to kneel down and prepares to strike him with the machete when Jason. Realizing Jason is, uh, I'm sorry, realizing Ginny is not his mother at all when he spots Pamela's severed head behind her, blocks Ginny's blow with his pickaxe, breaking it. Amy yeah. Steele, I remember uh, years ago and even recently, so Gillette was Jason. Warrington Gillette. Warrington Gillette. And In some scenes, not all. Right. Wearing the, um, the potato sack. Right. right. Well, him and uh, the stuntman Steve Dash. Steve, Steve Dash, right. So uh, Gillette... Actually, 
they had to change that film around because uh, when she had the machete in her hand, she missed and got him right between the hands. Ooh! And it was it was it was actually right when they started rolling, and you know they told her, okay, get him, get him, you know, get him on the. Um, because if I remember correctly, I think he had a shovel in his hand or, or a um, pickaxe. A pickaxe. Yeah, he had a pickaxe in his hand. Well, he didn't have that supposedly. Uh, I think he only had it in one hand, and he raised his other, and she missed it, Ooh. and she got his hand. They had to, they had to cut. They had to, they had to cut to you know the whole film. You know, stop everything and take him to the hospital. He got he got fucked up pretty bad. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. But then he got sewed up, came right back, and started shooting again. I wonder if maybe that was an inspiration for, was it part four when she hits him with the <laughs> thing and he slices his hand right <laughs> open? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, real quick about part two. I heard a funny story once at a convention that both Warrington Gillette and Steve Dash were appearing at, and Gillette had pictures of uh, Jason that he was signing, but in the actual picture, it, it wasn't him under the mask. It was Steve Dash. Dash saw this, goes up to his table, starts bitching at him. Like this, he's like, "You're making money off of my photo. That's me." He's like, "If I recall correctly, you were too fucking scared to go through the window." And Gillette's trying to play it off like, "Oh, I, I think I have amnesia. I, I didn't know. I forgot." And Dash just got this like tough New York accent and it just called him out. He does really have like a real hard New Jersey. Yeah, that's, that's, like... that, that's brutal <laughs> because Dash played him how many more times? Two just just in part two. Mm. Was it? I thought he I thought he played him another time. Just part two. Just part, part two. Yeah. Mm. This is uh, another scene where Betsy Palmer comes in at the end of the movie. Yeah. She filmed a little cameo here. Mm-hmm. I know they tried to get her to do more, and I think they, she said she didn't want any. Yeah, uh. she she wanted she was willing to do more. And then when she went in and seen the script, she was really turned off by, is this all you really want me to do? I'm an actress. And that's why I mentioned to you guys. I you, you know, to me is it a little bit of arrogant, ar- being arrogant? A little, is it arrogancy? A little bit. Yeah. Do you guys feel that way? Because when she said that at that panel, which, Mike, you love uh, going to those panels, and, yeah. and I, should, I, should, I, I really want to go with you on that, but I, I don't know, I just I get pooped out so fast. Uh, you know, I, I just don't like hearing that. As a fan, yeah, I don't. Yeah, very know, egomaniacal. Yeah, I, I mean, come on, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, that's also what Amy uh, Steele said is she didn't want to be in part three because she didn't want to be typecast. Mm. Which I understand, but you know, as a, as a you know maybe it's different for me because I'm sorry for us. Uh, let me speak for myself. I'm a horror fan. I would have loved to have been in all these horror. Right. Horror typecast films. me all you want. Yeah. I, I, I mean, none of think of think of it this way. Anybody that's been in a Friday Thirteenth film, what have they done outside of the series? You can't really say much. Not Corey much, Feldman, no. maybe Crispin Glover. But uh, anybody else, you can't really, th- you know, that was you should be honored to be typecast. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, the horror movie genre itself is just so giving, and they could have gone on to do a whole bunch. But. And in a way, that's how Friday the 13th was made. Uh, Sean Cunningham talks about, like, everybody, you know, he would try and get other directing opportunities, and people would be like, oh, you mean that fucking guy who made Last House on the Left? The fucking See, rape movie? Right. See, <laughs> here's the thing. Back in, like, the 80s, the early 80s slasher films like this were like the next thing uh, next to like porn. People hated them. They were looked down upon. Only within, I'd say, the last 20 years have people really embraced the genre, in my opinion. And there's more respect for it now. Like, it's to me, it's a crime. Like, they don't even have an Academy Award for the genre for, I mean, all these comedies and dramas and documentaries, they all get different awards at the Oscars. Where's horror? Yeah. 
why you know, what? you know you know who there's not a lot of people that you could say were totally robbed of i mean you know the academy awards oscars and all those there's all uh, like what am i trying to it's politics you know oh, the people sure. that get have to pay to get nominated and shit oh, yeah. Ooh, i yeah. thought it was fucked up that tony collette didn't get nominated for anything for hereditary i she know was what a crime in that movie what a crime and, and again i say this to my family all the time it's that corporate america shit i think that's my opinion because mm-hmm. i do understand some of these actors and actresses um situation where i don't want to be typecasted as you know, I got murdered here. I got my head cut here. I understand that because George, be honored George, to be George Reeves, George Reeves, was he the first Superman? Uh, was it George or Christopher Reeve? George Reeves. George. Right? George Reeves, him and Adam West both really, really regretted uh, their roles. Um, did they love it? Hell yeah. But they regretted it because they were typecast. You know, and I'm, and I'm assuming some of these actresses and actors felt the same way. But me personally, I'm just talking about me personally. I wouldn't want to do anything but horror. Look I mean, what it did for Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it, I guess. Look what it did for Adrian we're, Marbol. We're we're not actors, so I mean, I, we don't totally get it. But you know, they're artists. They want to show that they have range. I get that. But from a fan's point of view, it's like, yeah, you should be honored to be typecast. I mean, well, also, since, since but, we're such big big fans of of the genre, it's like. You try to put yourself in that position. Like, if I was in a series of different horror films, I think I'd be happy. You know. Well, let, let me 100%. ask you. Let, let me ask my nephew, Sam. Again, you're the youngest out of the three of us. How do you feel of a young man in his 30s that uh, Hollywood just is an evil? I'm sorry. It can be an evil place for theater and 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 our our genre and any other kind of films. How do you feel about that? Because I'm telling you, it's like if you're not set to the to the hundred and five pound rule or ninety pound rule, and you got to have big boobs or you got to be a, a well built guy to 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 make to make it in Hollywood, how do you feel about that? I mean, that that, that is just so narrow minded. Probably well, like any industry, yeah. it, it's it depends on who you know. You can read all about this in the manifesto I've been writing. Um, it's called "Fucking Hollywood, <laughs> motherfuckers, <laughs> fuck you." No, I'm just like, it's, uh, <laughs> It comes out on the news when I when I murder everybody. <laughs> but, but no, no, I'm serious. Do you, do you does that does that as a young person? I'm sorry, a, a middle age. Well, I don't know what you want to call yourself now. And these people change everything all the time. God damn it! Um, I identify as a strong black woman. <laughs> That's how I girlfriend. But, girlfriend. But, but do you see what I'm saying? Hollywood is just look at what it's doing to some of these people, man. You know, it's not it's not good to be fat. It's not good to be this. It's not good to be that. You know, fuck you, man. You know, I, I like these movies here. This guy's fat. This guy's skinny. This guy's ugly. This guy's, you know, or this woman's this, that, this, that. You know. Well, it's more, it may, to me, it's more real. I, I think Hollywood yeah. is typecast, dude. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think Hollywood is the biggest, you know, yeah. hypocrite. Yeah. You know, and then it well, makes these actors and actresses, young people, think, okay, I don't want to be typecast. Shut the fuck up, man! Yeah. If I was a, be honored more... that you're chosen to be oh, in a movie man. or on a show, come on! Like well after, put, Sal. Well um, when, when Sal was talking about, we were talking about the frighteners, and Sal brought up that that one guy um, plays the deputy in the movie. He plays the deputy in every single movie. We looked it up after the podcast. Literally, this guy had. 300 roles to his name yeah. literally 80 percent of them were deputy so-and-so officer so-and-so detective for him. Yeah. imagine the paychecks this guy's yeah. getting yeah. you know and, and and mike i don't know if my nephew knew this you brought up a hell of a point and again uh you know 
we're a horror podcast, but I gotta say this because as as a man, uh, you know, have I watched porn? Hell yeah! They said that Linda, um, oh, Lovelace? Linda Lovelace in Deep Throat. Do you know how much that film made all around the United States? Well, probably millions. Six hundred million dollars, and you're talking in the early seventies. They said no movie up to today has made that much money in um, a short period of time. Now, I know there's there's series like Star Wars that made billions or, or, or uh, whatever, wherever else you want to come up with, sci-fi, regular stuff, whatever. But back then, $600 million it grossed. Crazy to think about, right? And it was a porn. Yeah. It was a hardcore Dude. porn. It was a hardcore Dude. porn. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and as for our genre... Are you kidding me? I remember my, my, my aunt back in the day and my brother, my sister, everybody in my family used to laugh at me. Where's Sal? He's watching Godzilla movies. Well, you know what? You can laugh all you want. But I looked it up, and they said in Japan, their theaters are a lot bigger than ours, as well as their music, because, because the Japanese people love rock and roll, mm. which I think is so cool. And, and their theaters are way better than ours. And they said it was astronomical what these Godzilla movies were pulling in. Oh, in Japan! Yeah. Oh my I God! I they made they made our they made the United States some of the movies that we've had come out with the biggest grossing weekends. They made us look like shit. <laughs> with, well, with, most with, of the overseas movies are what contributes. Yeah. I mean, money is what contributes to those high grossing movies. Even now, our highest paid actors: Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mel Gibson. You name it. These guys are making Japanese commercials because they're making yeah. so much money over there. A lot of a lot of America doesn't know that. But I can say the same thing about uh, professional wrestling. Yeah. After say someone doesn't do so well in WWE or any of the big indie leagues, they make a ton of money in Japan. Yeah. Well, with uh, UFC, a lot of fighters go overseas and yeah. fight mm-hmm. that. So while I'm getting to the end of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Um, Paul and Ginny return to the cabin and hear someone outside thinking that Jason has followed them. They open the door only to find that little ter- little little dog outside. <laughs> Muffin. Muffin. So um, just as they sigh in relief and everything, you think it's over, an unmasked Jason bursts through the window from behind and grabs Ginny. Um, she then awakens, being loaded into an ambulance, and calls out for Paul, who is nowhere to be seen, leaving his fate ambiguous. This is another dream sequence like the first one. Then this one, though, um, when Jason comes through the... The window, he's a, he's a man by now. He looks like a giant redneck. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the, the, the overalls on, the flannel, some fucked... I, I read a thing that said they actually went to a dentist and said, like, can you make us, like, the most fucked up teeth you can make? And the dentist made him the teeth for this movie. <laughs> Must be from uh, eastern Kentucky, yeah. huh? But you know he's a man. He's got a beard in this one. He's also got some fucked up hair going on there, like a half a fucking uh, mullet. He was a rocker. Okay, guys. Now, tell me again. uh, What did they have to do for this actor? Was Was he on a rope or a belt to spring backwards when he grabbed Johnny? Probably. Like some, mm-hmm. something that sent him swinging through the window. Okay, and again, Mike, now who was the Jason in the sack? Uh, Warren Gillette. It was Warren well, Gillette. In, I think in some scenes it was him, but I think the stunts was Steve Dash. Okay. So who mm-hmm. went through the window? Probably Steve Dash. Or, I mean, I really don't know. Actually, I think it was um, Gillette. It was, it, it was, it was actually played. The, that was him in the, yeah, on Mast here. Okay. Because that, that, that is a really creepy uh, Jason, man. Yeah, and in all these documentaries, he tells the same thing, kind of like an American Werewolf in London. He's like, 
you know, all I wanted to be was a, a serious actor and everything, and they fucked up my face like <laughs> no one even knows it's me. <laughs> so, finish off this movie, we got a body count of nine for uh, Jason's uh, first round of kills here. Very good first sequel. That's right. So, uh, moving on for Friday the 13th, part two, into part three. 3D. That's right. We got a 3D. I think Mike's going to take over here for us. All right. The film is presented in stereoscopic 3D and Dolby Stereo, initially released to theaters in the 3D format, which was experiencing a resurgence in popularity at the time. For many years, the 3D version was only available in Japan, but in 2009, the 3D version was released to American Home Video for the first time on a deluxe edition DVD that also includes the 2D version. And in this one, there was an insane amount of 3D parts, just from what I can... What I could put together, there's the credits, a clothesline pole, a TV antenna, a snake that you could tell is totally attached to a, a wire, a rat, a spike through the mouth, a baseball bat, a joint, an eyeball, a, a wallet, joint. a biker fist, a yo-yo, a pitchfork in the neck, some juggling of the apples, a spear gun, a hot poker, another eyeball, Jason, Jason reaching out, um, an axe through the head at the end. So there is no shortage of uh, fun shit in this movie. Marijuana in 3D. <laughs> marijuana in 3D. That's I, right. I, remind me that. What did they do that they made the marijuana in 3D? Probably just blew I th- he goes, he goes, yo, you mind sharing the wealth? And he goes, hey, <laughs> right into the camera. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Uh, Martin J. Sadoff, the film's 3D effects supervisor, is one of the many people that lay claim to being the one responsible for coming up with Jason's trademark hockey mask which makes its first appearance here. That's right. It was uh, British stuntman Richard Brooker who plays Jason Voorhees in Part 3. Finally acquires that hockey mask from his luckless victim, Shelly. This place takes place a short uh, time after the events of Part 2, but Brooker's Jason bears little resemblance to the previous movie, and this one is... uh, Okay, I am totally wrong here. I thought Shelly was from Part 5, the handicapped guy that gets slaughtered by the axe. I got the name wrong. I got the name completely wrong. No, Shelly's the jester. He's got all the masks and everything. And yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Wait, is this the one with Crispin? Fat white man with a with an afro? Is this? Yeah. Okay. Now he's juggling. Okay. Yeah. Now I know who you're talking about. No. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Huh? I was going to say, um, is Crispin Glover in this one or is he in part four? Part four. Part four. Okay. Yeah. But funky dancing? Oh, yeah. Love but it. Richard oh, Brooker, <laughs> Richard Brooker, uh, <laughs> and again, put my poor nephew, I, I send him all these horrible movies I watch. And Richard Brooker made this movie called Death Stalker. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And again, and again, yeah, my dumbass looks at the cover, you know, of, of the movies or DVDs, like I mentioned to, to our good friend Mike here, all the time, and I get screwed every time. I'm like, oh look, it's got a big giant guy, and another guy's fighting him. Yeah. I watched that movie, man. I, I, it was so bad, I couldn't even oh, turn man. it off. Well, in, <laughs> in the early '80s, there was a whole slew. Of these like sword and sorcerer oh, films, like, especially yeah. out of Italy. Sorcerer. <laughs> I mean, like dragons, medieval sword fighting, <laughs> fantasy. There was a ton of fantasy right. films in the early '80s that, and <laughs> Deathstalker was one of them. And it, it's bad. Right. And then, and then what made it worse? There was another one, Deathstalker. Yeah, they made two of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is some of those films where you're like, how did the first one get made? But then why the fuck? Why would you make one? another one? Oh, but again, you know, you see some of these guys in these movies and it's just, you know, I, I I don't care, man. I would love to have been there. I would have loved to have been part of every bit of this, man. I'm sorry. I'm such a fan. I, there's no way I can't, man. I mean, you know, come on, these guys. But 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 Sammy bringing up uh, Shelly, 
I know on my name is Jason. His name was his, Jason. His name, his name was Jason. Mm-hmm. He was on there. To me, do you do you remember that, Sam? Larry Zerner is the yeah. actor. Do you remember player. that? It seemed like uh his character and himself were the same guy. Because when he was talking, mm. you know, I was overweight then. I was supposed to no, no, I'm sorry. I'm playing an overweight guy that I have to be funny and annoying. That way I could be recognized. Nobody But then if you really listen to him and watch his mannerisms, I think he played himself. Oh, possibly. Because he just, you could see it in his, and as a heavy guy, I know what it's like. I'm sure he went through that. Yeah. You know. I mean, everybody, okay, Every any, <laughs> say, like, teenager, young adult, 20-something-year-old that was in a Friday 13th film, their characters are there at a summer camp, a nice, like, lake house, they're all trying to get laid. So if the fat, funny guy is, you know, being a goof, he's doing what everybody else is trying to do, trying to get laid. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I felt really bad about that because that poor guy, you know, and and, and now... He gets shot down in this movie, too, right? Some oh, girl, yeah, yeah. Some yeah girl constantly. He's a real, like, sad sack of shit, too. He's like, <laughs> he's like they're, all, they're, all going, they're all going skinny dipping, and he's like, they're like, why aren't you going? He's like, because I'm too chubby. <laughs> my, my little fat feelings. Oh. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And then he takes a crossbow to the eye, right? Is yeah. that him? I no, mean, no. Oh, it's a different him. character. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it is it me or do, do I feel? Do, do, I I don't I don't know. I'm sorry. All the stuff they did to that guy, he kind of deserved it because he was annoying. I wanted to slap the shit out of him. At first, I felt bad for him because I'm an overweight guy, and I'm like, oh boy, they don't want to play with the fat guy, you know. But then when he did that annoying shit with with all the stunts he pulled, I'm glad he got his ass kicked. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> Jason Statement wannabe. See, <laughs> Sal, you're catching on. <laughs> He's more of like a Jonah Hill type. Yeah. In this movie. <laughs> Super bad in this movie. <laughs> oh, shit. Originally, Jenny was supposed to return as the main character. The proposed plot had her confined to a psychiatric hospital suffering from the trauma inflicted on her during the ordeal with Jason from the previous film. Intent on revenge, he tracks her down and begins to murder the staff and the other patients at the hospital, similar to how Michael Myers stalked Laurie Strode in the hospital in Halloween 2 from 1981. However, Steele feared being typecast and ultimately turned down the offer of reprising her role. I think that would have been a little too on the nose to have that exact plot with, you know, following Halloween. Yeah. I think it was only like three years after Halloween 2 that they decided to do this. Mm. Mm. Steve Miner returned to direct part three. The screenplay was penned by Martin Kittroser, who would later help co-write the fifth installment, A New Beginning. Carol Watson and unaccredited Petru Popescu, they tinker a bit with the Jason myth. There is no mention of a Camp Crystal Lake, and Jason is not treated as someone local legend, but as a singular flesh-and-blood boogeyman who had previously assaulted the film's heroine, Chris, played by Dana Kimmel. The victims are no longer camp counselors, but a group of young adults on vacation at a lakefront property called Higgins Haven, just one day after Jason's first killing spree in part two. Yeah. You know, and, and, and in part two, I don't know I, I don't know if you guys knew this, uh, Susan, Ken, Susan Cunningham was the editor of that film. Was, and, was that like that, related to Sean? That's his wife. Oh, okay. That's his wife. And, and, you know, I have to congratulate him for that because, you know, like anything else, you know, you want to help out your family, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how many times can you actually say that it actually was a help? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. like when I brought up to you guys, uh, Tom Savini uh, wasn't in part two, didn't have the um, prosthetics or the makeup job in part two. And I could see the quality. Right. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, if it was, if that were me, I would have begged him. To, I would have paid him whatever he wanted. Get back here. 
I well, want to make this franchise a, a, a you know multi-million dollar business. There you go. Yeah. But making, I mean, making part one, they probably had no idea how well the movie was going to do. And they didn't. Right. Yeah, they didn't. And look at it now. What are we, 2021? Mm-hmm. So how old is, is Friday 13th as of 40? 40 yeah. years old. Mm-hmm. 40 years old. And I tell my kids all the time, they're like, Dad, this movie came out, you know, it'll, it'll, you know that crap you want. Oh, yeah? You're going to be able to tell me 40 years from now that this, what, you know, that kids have their shirts or, or you know, uh, logos or, you know, stickers or books. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, I mean, in, in one way, I, I respect my family telling me that. They're right. But I'm going to protect my, you know, my greatest love, which is the genre for horror. Yeah. There was also uh, an interview I saw with uh, Sean Cunningham's son, who he was supposed to play the first Jason, but um, his mother was like, no, you ain't doing that fucking... <laughs> like, they saw what he, you know, he'd have to be in the ma- crazy makeup and everything, and they're like, you're not going to be in the fucking water oh, for see, two I days, and, you know? That's, that's how this one guy was. He's like, Thanks, he's, Mom. That's oh. what he basically says in the, in the thing. He's like, you know, I could have been the first Jason, but, I mean, I'm not bitter or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sammy, Sammy... When, so how old were you again when you decided this was a really big thing, this big part of your life was horror? What, 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 how old were you? Oh, I don't know if I ever, it was always just a part of it. Like I said, you know, I kind of grew up like growing up in a movie theater. So right. I was, right. oh yeah, that's tons right. of yeah. horror. Yeah. Right. And, and again, you know, man, I was, this I think one of the, one of them that I really remember was like, they released, um, a, you know, the exorcist, like a 30th version or something, maybe mm-hmm. in 1997. I was like. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was one of them. Right because, you know, it, back, back in my day, you know, now you're talking, you know, uh, later 60s. I'm this little kid watching these movies, and it was just so amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And it still has that same effect. I'm going to be 61 this October, and it still has the same effect. Well, on it, me. Yeah, it's the feeling that you get watching these. Like, it, you get emotional. You get, I mean, most people get scared. We're so desensitized to violence <laughs> watching these over the years. But, I mean, some still get me. There are still some of those horror films that still get me where my I can feel my heart pounding. I'm sitting yeah. on the edge of my seat. The hairs are raising on the back of my neck. It still gets me. And that's why I keep watching because I, I enjoy that feeling. I'd, I'd have to say well, two films that mentally, which is rare because I'm such an idiot, mentally I wasn't prepared for. The first one my nephew brought up. Uh, or I'm sorry. I'm, yes, he did. Yes, he did. I'm sorry. It was um, uh, it was a remake. Um, what was that one where she got raped, Sammy? Uh, Last House on the Left or I Spit on Your Grave? I Spit on Your Grave. The the, the newer versions of I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. The very first one, mm-hmm. I was not prepared for that. Oh, I was not when she prepared. Shoves a shotgun yeah, up his when ass. she when she with the shotgun scene, with the pulling of the teeth scene, her chopping his peepee off. That that film and. Uh, Human Centipede 2. Oh, yeah. I was not ready. I actually, I, it wasn't an anxiety thing. It was like, oh, my God. I, I, I got to turn it off Just for a little bit. Sick and depraved. Well, the, guy, the guy's whacking it with sandpaper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think one thing that people don't think about with you know special effects in films like this and stuff is that it was crazy for back then. You think like when you're yeah. a kid and stuff, like, right. you know, you watch The Never Ending Story, you think, there, oh, there really is a flying dog named Atreyu or something like that, you know? Felcor. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as you get older, you learn like, oh, that was a special effect or look how cheesy that looks now. But like... Like we're seeing now, we see crazy shit in movies that's yeah. CGI or you know practical effects that have gotten so amazing, and you don't even know they're fake. But but has that ever done that to you, Sam? What? Just you weren't mentally prepared for something that brutal. As and I've yeah. watched oh, so yeah. much brutal shit, mm-hmm. but those two movies caught me off guard. 
You know, I'm like, oh my god. There's one movie that came out pretty recently. It's called Nocturnal Animals with Jake Gyllenhaal. And in the movie, there's like, they're driving at night in the desert, and this car full of you know shitheads pulls up and is like <laughs> trying to get them to pull over and shit, and they end up like raping his wife and his daughter and shit like that and there was this like there's no gore in it or anything like that but it was, watching that whole thing is has so much anxiety built up it was oh, like yeah, right. that was just a crazy scene i remember that was one of the ones that like made me feel like very very uncomfortable oh, yeah. okay so uh, sort of, what I mean, about you mike you you mentioned never ending story not a horror film <laughs> but i saw that when i was a kid and you know the scene where artex drowns in the fucking mud and atreus is yelling artex like oh my god every little kid was probably sobbing his eyes out yeah it's, it gets to you emotionally. Jason comes upon a small country store owned by middle-aged couple Harold Hockett, played by Steve Siskind, and his bitchy wife, Edna, played by <laughs> Sherry Moggins, where he steals some new clothes in a scene that's a blatant homage to Halloween. Yeah, we also get a uh, uh, 3D gag right in there um, at, the begin- at the end of that clothesline scene there. Jason murders them both, first by (laughs) stabbing Harold in the chest with a meat cleaver. After he takes drinks with his Jack Daniels on the toilet, he takes a no-wipe dumper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you forgot to wipe, huh? That's what you get. That's right. Cleaver to the chest. Look at his pocket protector. (laughs) That's right. And the thing is, like, he's got so much shit jammed in that pocket protector, too. But I know when I drink my Jack Daniels, I like to do it on the toilet. That's right. I bet, I bet his bitchy wife gives him a blumpkin, too. He had a blumpkin. No, no. That chick, that, that, chick, that chick wasn't blowing we're nobody not, in 20 we're, years. Dude. We're not discussing that. But, um, I never noticed Look it up. Go to, go to UrbanDictionary.com. By the way, um, I think we skipped over, but director Steve Miner makes a cameo in the, as a television newscaster reporting on the mass murders of the first film and how Jason is still on the loose in the beginning of this one. <laughs> Pretty cool. cool. Yeah. I like it when, when filmmakers make a cameo. So then Jason stabs Edna in the back of the neck with one of her own knitting needles. From there, Jason makes his way to the lakefront property, Higgins Haven, intent on taking further bloody revenge on a new unsuspecting group. And we get two 3D g- gags in there in like a matter of five seconds. The knitting needle through her mouth, and then uh, it opens on a kid uh, with a baseball bat right in the front there. Playing some street baseball. That's right. Consisting of Chris Higgins and her friends who travel to Higgins Haven, her vacation home on Crystal Lake to spend the weekend. The gang includes a pregnant Debbie, her boyfriend Andy, Shelly, and his blind date Vera, who does not reciprocate his feelings, and stoners Chuck and Chili. That's right. This is like the first movie where we got, like, everyone smokes weed in all these movies, but this is the first one where they're like Cheech and Chong, like, like ah, dude, we got an ounce of grass. Whose parents are these? I forgot. <laughs> parents? They're parents? No, they're yeah. Buddies. No, they were, weren't they, what's her name's parents? <laughs> No. no, the girl that oh they were oh they were part of the come on man they look old these two. <laughs> uh, they're just part of the group with Andy Shelley and his blind date Vera. Yeah. Oh, so, they look they look kind of hey, old. To double me. bubble. Yeah. So as they're heading up, <laughs> as they're heading up to Higgins Haven, we inquire uh, the Prophet of Doom. Prophet of Doom. <laughs> this time he's played by uh, he's Abel, played by David Wiley. So uh, you want to get into that a little sure. bit about Abel? <laughs> he played in the middle of the street. <laughs> Abel was apparently homeless and a religious zealot, prone to wandering around Crystal Lake, preaching his messages of doom. While wandering through Crystal Lake, he finds a mutilated eyeball and other body parts. Taking this to be a message, Abel takes the eye and sometime later falls asleep in the middle of the road, woken up by Chris Higgins and her friends, who nearly run him over. Thanking them for, wa- for waking him, Abel reveals the eye he had found to the group disgusting them as abel begins to shout about how chris and her friends should go back from 
whence they came, Chris's group run back to their van and drive off, leaving Abel yelling about how they are doomed if they continue onward. And we get another uh, 3D gag at the end of this scene where he uh, shows the eyeball to the kids and then he shoves it right into the camera there. You know this dude was also a drunk as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's screaming about God around the lakefront, you know. Anybody who finds an eyeball. Yeah, that too. Picks it up and shows it to you. Yeah, there might I mean, be a little something wrong with him. I've only found like one eyeball my whole life, so I don't know. <laughs> Just one? Just one, dude. You amateur. <laughs> it wasn't even a pair. See what I'm saying? Like how hard it is to find eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love oh, this guy. Oh, God, the biker oh, yeah. gang. Oh, so, my God. So when they decide to go to the store, two members of our group, uh, Vera and Shelly, run into troublesome biker gang consisting of leader Ali, played by Nick Savage, his sidekick Loco, played by Kevin O'Brien, and a biker chick named Fox, played by Gloria Charles. Uh, Sal, I imagine you like the scene in this where the cashier tells uh, Vera, she goes, we don't take no food stamps here. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I thought of Sal. That, like that's <laughs> that was a racist-ass comment yeah, that they gave. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, I, you know what? I don't even know if I should say this, but <laughs> come on. <laughs> food the poor girl. Blatantly yeah. racist. Yeah. I mean, you know, come on. All oh, right. Boy. After a brief scuffle inside the store as Shelly and Vera are about to leave, Ellie exits the store and vandalizes Rick's car, punching in the windows. Exacting revenge, Shelly runs over the biker's motorcycles for their harassment and speeds away as he and Vera cheer in victory. And, of course, at the end of this one, we get yet another 3D gag. <laughs> the chain going through the window. Hey, with the chain punching through the window. Olympia, Olympia beer. Olympia beer truck. You don't see Olympia beer anymore. I don't even know if they're around anymore. Olympia beer was huh. awesome back in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> there was also supposed to be like a – this was supposed to be an extended scene where like they uh, – even more comical, they the bikers follow them off in their car, and like Shelly sprays champagne in the one guy's face as he falls. Over. Yeah, they talk about that. Shelly is a badass in this movie. <laughs> yeah. When the biker gang arrives at the property, plotting to siphon gas from the teenager's van to burn down the barn, Jason has other plans in mind. He quickly dispatches Fox when she explores the barn. Off screen, Jason has pinned her corpse against one of the barn rafters with a sharp pitchfork driven through her throat. And Loco is next to be killed by Jason when he goes into the barn to look for her. Jason perforates his midsection with another sharp pitchfork the same way he did the fox. Ali goes, Ali goes into the barn after his gang to discover their corpses, and Jason, as appears, Ali attempts to fight him, but is easily overtaken and presumably killed as the maniac bludgeons him with a large metal wrench. And there's no 3D gags in this scene. Just fucking kidding. Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> there's like 3D. There's like six of them in this scene where the porch pitchfork is sticking out of people. <laughs> Wait, Sam, could you could you play this? Because it looked like she moved. I think I caught her moving. Watch this. Did she move? She's got a pitchfork and a trope, and she's moving. Watch, watch. I like how he dies with a cigarette in his I mouth know, too. He doesn't drop the cigarette. So like, Still looks like badass. <laughs> now watch. You're gonna see her move a little. Wait. Oh, Maybe it's man. the death rattle. It could be the death rattle. Watch. Yep, oh, yeah, her moving. neck moved. Her <laughs> neck moved. <laughs> Good eye, Sal. You caught it. That's got to be hard to die in a movie with your eyes open, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, don't move, don't move, don't move. <laughs> now, see, in this in this film, they had that racist part, but they don't have it completely racist because usually they always say black people die first. In this one, they die, didn't die till what, the almost middle? That's true. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, was this a movie racist? Yeah, only halfway through. 
Just, uh, just half. Just half racist. Just a tad. <laughs> After professing his love and getting told off by Vera, Shelley Finkelstein, played by Larry Zerner, sulks away into the barn where Jason off-screen attacks him and steals his hockey mask and spear gun. Shelley later shows up agonizing with his throat badly slashed. At first, one of the stoners, Chili, believes it to be another prank but soon finds it to be all too real and flees in horror. That's right. He's the sad sack of shit that cried wolf, Shelly. I, I am so <laughs> glad, like Sammy said from I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I am so glad Shelly got in the trope. Fuck him, that dumbass. <laughs> That's what you you get for doing all this stupid shit, fatty. This guy just just has, like, the worst life. He's cursed with the name Finkelstein. I mean, come on. And Shelly? Your name is actually (laughs) Shelly. This guy's got it rough, man. And with the hair and the curly. I mean, come on. Dude, he was just born to be killed. (laughs) Born to be Jason's victim. And he gets rejected, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The girls don't want nothing to do with him, man. Poor Shelly. Vera retreats to a pier where realizes she still has Shelly's wallet from the store with the bikers, but accidentally drops it into the lake. She enters the lake to retrieve it when Jason, now donning Shelly's hockey mask and spear gun, shows up. Thinking it's another one of Shelly's unfunny, scary pranks, she thinks nothing of him until it's too late and Jason fires the spear gun into her eye, killing her before tuning his attention to those in the house. That's right. And it's a Velcro wallet, just in case you forgot we were in the 80s. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Hey, I got one. I got a badass one, man. I got a maniac. Okay. Fucking Velcro wallet. I got to say... That scene, I laughed my ass off because when that chick got the arrow in the eye, she made this face like. <laughs> <laughs> that is the first time we see Jason with the mask. <laughs> yeah, that's the very first time. And he also uh, turns around like really fucking slow to walk back into the house right there. It's almost comical how slow he's going. Yeah, mm-hmm. look, look. He's pimping. Look, there you go. He's got a hunchback. Yeah, he's got the lean a little bit too. <laughs> I mean, would we, you rather him do like the Ric Flair strut? Yeah, but here's my thing. Here's my thing. You see this giant wearing a hockey, ma- hockey mask and a spear gun. Wouldn't you think you'd start yelling or something? You can't tell me that dumbass thought that was Shelly. Shelly's a short, white, curly-haired, fat guy. And here you, and here's a bald, white, crazy, nutty motherfucker with a hockey mask on. You can't tell the difference, you dumbass. I'm glad you got shot in the face, you dumbass. <laughs> That's the first thing I would say. That doesn't look like that curly-headed fuck. Right? Well, this guy might actually kill me. <laughs> Debbie and Andy have sex, and Jason enters the cabin. Now using Shelly's hockey mask to cover his hideously deformed face. Afterwards, Debbie takes a shower, and Andy fetches a beer while performing a handstand. But before he can even reach the stairs, he encounters Jason, who bisects him with a machete to the crotch, slicing him in half. I love this kill. For some reason, I don't know why. That's an awesome <laughs> fucking kill. Painful. God damn, that's got to be painful, man. You know where they do this even better? And um, shit, I, I'm not gonna. Bone Tomahawk is in the movie. Now. Oh hell you seen that? Yeah. yeah, I didn't see that. Awesome what happened, western, what great filmmaker. So uh, in Bone Tomahawk, it's it's a western, but uh, these uh, I guess you could call them they're like a subspecies of a, of Native Americans. They're cannibals, and they're like cavemen, and they come and get uh, this cowboy's wife, and the cowboys go after the, the cavemen to go get them, and these guys, like I said, they're cannibals. They're splitting people in half, dude, and to use 
the weapon that does it, it's like a giant jawbone of uh, of an animal. They're splitting guys in half. It's brutal. Yeah. I mean, they're scalping what's the name people. Of his film? What's uh, Bone Tomahawk. You know what? Maybe I did. It's got Kurt Russell Kurt in it, Russell, Patrick Wilson from uh, The Conjuring Haig. and stuff. Oh, Sid really? Haig. Yeah. Uh, so Debbie, the pregnant girl, gets out of the shower and rests in the hammock to read a Fangoria magazine, the one featuring Savini, only for blood to drip down onto the magazine. Looking up, she discovers Andy's mutilated corpse hanging from the rafters, and before she can even scream, Jason drives a kitchen knife through her chest from underneath the hammock, killing her. That's right. That's uh, another uh, like Kevin Bacon type test. We yes. see these over and over and over again in these series too. No, no, okay. Wait a minute, Sam. Could you go back? Is that kid's body folded uh, in half? Yeah, it sure. Yeah, because like he cut it. him in half. I don't. There. Rem- I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh man, because there's this, is it, that's his guts right there, right? Yeah, because yeah, he split shit. him right down the middle. You see, like that's his his leg is like over there with all the. <laughs> Jason likes to come from the back. Jason is a strange motherfucker boy. Let me tell you. Don't turn your back on uh, on the mongoloid. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> You know, what? You, know what? you know what I always think of when that? Have you ever seen uh, Eastbound and Down? Oh, yeah. Danny McBride is having kids, or he's having uh, dinner with his family and everything like that, and like his nephews, and he's like talking about their. He's like, Your dad used to be crazy back in the day. Remember that kid, Mongoloid Mike? <laughs> he used to beat the shit out of that kid. <laughs> and the mom is like, Shut up, shut up, shut up. Oh, my God. That show was hilarious. Season two, yeah. when he goes down to Mexico, oh, yeah. he's got the little guy going, Fuck you, fuck your guy. face. Oh. He pulls the knife on him all the time. He's got the little knife. <laughs> Back at the cabin, Chuck and Chili are having a romance, complete with lots of marijuana smoking, when suddenly the lights go out. Chuck heads to the basement to check the fuse box, and Jason is there, waiting for him. Jason pushes Chuck towards the fuse box, killing him by electrocution, but also restoring the power to the cabin. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, so if you ever wanted to see Tommy Chong get killed by uh, Jason Voorhees. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> He's even got the bandana around his head. <laughs> Hey, turn it down, man. Hey, you ate a chick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Oh, God. I love it. <laughs> Cheech oh, and Chong should have made a horror movie. Oh, Could you imagine yeah. that? They should have made a Friday the 13th, you know, something. they should have incorpororated something God. in that movie. Almost like <laughs> Where a- Jason's in the corner getting high, and they, give, they sell him some bad weed, so that's why he decides to go kill everybody. <laughs> Jason's getting high. <laughs> Sounds like a pitch to me. After finding almost everyone dead, Chili runs into Jason, who kills her by impaling her by the stomach with an incandescent fireplace poker. That's right. We get another uh, 3D gag in this movie. There's tons yeah. of <laughs> this, uh, all these Friday the 13th movies all have a part where like, either the final girl or someone else finds like 100 dead bodies in the house. Oh my God. You know what right. I found funny is I never noticed it. I, I, man, in, this, in 79 to 80, every chick I knew had that little boot that held the lighter in it. Did you notice she had one? Sammy, go back where she's no. coming down the stairs. She's got the she's got the little boot with the lighter in it. <laughs> it's a little stupid it's like a little, little secret compartment in her in her boot. That's awesome. Dude, it's awesome. She's hot. Looking for her boyfriend Rick, unaware that Jason is killing him, Jason kills Rick by crushing his head with his bare hands until one of Rick's eyeballs burst out of his socket. That's right. Amazing awesome. uh, special effects in this one. You kind of see it, how it's on a, a little Pop, track a that string. pops out of his yeah. head. <laughs> so cool. Dude, practical effects are the best. That's what's funny about the, these ones. Is this is when it starts to get real goofy in the movie where you can watch it with I, a bunch of different people and, like, you know, have fun watching it? But I told oh, you yeah. guys, I told you guys a long time ago, after Friday the 13th 2, 
from I'm sorry, yeah, after two, three, four, five, and six, just uh, it was just sometimes hard for me to watch because then it, <laughs> they started getting ridiculous. Oh yeah. Well, this next scene is uh, a little bit ridiculous here too. After finding Loco's mutilated corpse hanging from a tree, Chris runs back inside and tries to barricade the door and lock the windows. All of a sudden, Rick's corpse is heaved through the window, and Jason gains entry to the cabin where a big fight ensues. I, I, you know what? Jason has a hell of a sense of humor because trolling people through the window. <laughs> <laughs> there I are mean, so many people that go through the windows yeah. in this franchise. <laughs> I mean, is it me? Like he, he he mutilates them. Mob he toss. kills them. He chops them in tree. He bends them in half. Why do you got to throw them through a window? But I like just to, just to scare people. He doesn't people. like doors. What I like is in part one is like uh, Mrs. Voorhees throws them through him and it's like, uh, as the body comes through the window and the third one is like, he throws the fucking body through the window. Like it comes in at a hundred miles an hour like it was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> Jason likes to lift some weights, lift some logs in the middle of the woods. <laughs> Picks up a big ass tree trunk and does a couple presses, you know. I think his cholesterol was probably up that day. <laughs> oh, so this brings us to our uh, final girl, oh, uh, yeah. Chris Higgins, played by Dana Kimmel. Yeah. Um, Chris was the first person to have seen Jason be- before the events of Part Two. While on vacation with her parents at Higgins Haven as a teenager, they got into a heated argument, arriving home late from a date one night with her boyfriend Rick. Um, as a result, Christine's mother was slapping her, so Christine ran out of the house and into the woods. Um, she found Russ at the base of a tree, dozing off, but shortly after, Chris awoke to the sound of footsteps and looked behind her, finding a hideous man with a knife who gave chase to her. Um, Chris managed to kick the knife out of the man's hand and run away in fear, but he kept pulling her down. Eventually, she lost consciousness, awaking the next day in her own bed for reasons unknown. Her parents never mentioned anything to her about the attack or the attacker. What Chris didn't remember was that she regained consciousness in the deformed man's hands before breaking free of his grip. However, Chris did remember the hideous man's face and couldn't forget about it. So um, that was a whole big scene in the movie there. And I know uh, watching some of these documentaries, I know it was a big thing. Like they were trying to imply that Jason raped her. (laughs) And um, yeah, Dana Kimmel actually fought pretty hard to get that not included in there. There is a long fight and chase sequence where they never waste an opportunity for a 3D gag or someone going through a window. That's right. And in this one, it's Jason. He comes through another goddamn window again. When he, she, uh, she traps his hands in the top of the van door oh, or in the van cool. window. And uh, to get free, breaks his head through the middle of the window. <laughs> Headbutt. <laughs> Jason right. shows himself to be still alive and slides up his mask to make room for him to escape the noose, showing his deformed face in the process. Chris is terrified to recognize Jason as the horrible madman who attacked her two years before. There he is. I like that little smile he gives her, too. Yeah. I know. How many toothpicks does he have? Four? Why can't these slasher guys, monster guys have teeth? Why do they always have to have two or three of them? It's because they're eating, like, bears and chickens and rabbits raw. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would that. All right. All right. There's no dentistry out there. Floss, buddy. Floss. <laughs> There's no, no dentist up in Jersey, right? Yeah. Pamela Voorhees, not a good mother when it comes to the dentist. <laughs> Jason advances towards Chris and raises his machete to kill her at last. Before he can finish her off, Ali, badly injured but still alive, suddenly appears and struggles with Jason. Predictably, the maniac overpowers him again, chopping off his right arm and hacking him to death multiple times with his machete. This is the token black guy thing at the end where he shows up to save the day and is just immediately massacred. 
While Jason is busy with Ali, Chris picks up a nearby lumberjack axe and sneaks up behind the ruthless killer. Just as Jason begins to turn his attention back towards Chris, she buries the axe into his forehead. Even with this wound, he still lopes forward, trying to grab Chris, but suddenly he collapses, supposedly dead. Oh, yeah. There's another, uh, yet another 3D gag in there. That was, that was an excellent scene. That, that, getting hit in the head with the axe and he's still moving. Awesome. Awesome. I've never seen this actually in 3D, but I want to so bad. Well, I did it, it? I mean, I really don't know, but I think when, in the 80s when this came out, a lot of people weren't buying VHS, but uh, those that could afford a VHS tape, because they were expensive when they first came out. And this is like, what, 83 when this came out? Uh, 80, yeah, 83. Two? Two. Two. 82. If you were to buy a VHS tape, I wonder if they actually sold uh, 3D glasses with it. Well, not to worry, nephew. Uh, the three, the uh, Blu-ray 3D pack I have at home, and I'll bring it to you, and it's got the 3D glasses. Oh, nice. Two pair. <laughs> Two pair. So if you got a Blu-ray player in here, you can watch it with the glasses on. Nice. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Christine Chris Higgins, played by Dana Kimmel. Chris Higgins was the first person, not including Ginny Field, to see Jason as an adult after his supposed death in the lake in 1957, and the second person to have ever survived an encounter with him. She was the second person to have battled-slash-fought him with fierce offensive and defensive attacks that inflicted heavy damage on him and were enough to stop him, at least for a short while. Her final axe blow to his head would be with him as a giant gash, at least until the destruction of his original body. That's right, and uh, when he takes off his mask in part uh, four, you can actually see he's still got that giant axe gash on his. <laughs> it's awesome. I got to check that out. I, I didn't uh, notice that. So we got another uh, false ending at the end of this one. All right. Mm. The dream sequence. Why does she have yeah. to be in a boat like the first one? Come on. <laughs> Hammer on a raft. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, Chris awakens to see an unmasked and living Jason looking at her through the window of the house, menacingly smiling at her. After bursting down the door after staring at her, Jason begins to run towards her position. As she tries to paddle away, she turns back, realizing that Jason wasn't there, believing it was just a hallucination. However, the decaying corpse of Jason's mother rises from the lake and drags her down into the water, somehow finding and attaching her head in the, in the process. But this was all a bad dream after all in reality. Chris is all right, but her mental state and highly questionable as she screams and hysterically laughs while the police car she was in drives off. Oh, so there's there's Pamela. Look at the worms. See the worm come out of her head? Worms grabbing her, bringing her down into the water. Yeah, did you notice she grabbed her boob? <laughs> that was actually that was a, a woman, stunt woman uh, in the in the makeup there too. Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. yeah. This chick talks about how um, she was doing that scene and she had the, that nasty lake was all. Well, first of all, they had man-made this whole entire area, like all those cabins and everything. They built like from scratch, so oh, really? it was like a whole area. Yeah, and the uh, the lake was they said was just nasty, like overrun with mosquitoes and like oh, yeah, worms and shit like that. Uh, they actually said they didn't really build the lake right, so it kept draining on them. So like during production, they kept having to fill it up. And okay, so how did how did they make the cabins look? You know, old and used and set design. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Wow. Some good prop masters. That's really, a, really good. That's amazing. Some of the shit that people put together for these movies. Yeah, that, like, that's so why. That's why I mentioned you guys before, man. The scenery just. Oh, that's what I told everything. you about. There, there was one like B movie that came out. Remember, I told it was like, oh, was it The Pale Door or something like that? Have you, remember, you know, mm, does that ring a bell with anybody? I think I've seen that. 
It was it like, yeah, it was like a Western movie where they come upon like witches in a town and stuff like that. Like, oh, in, like, okay, 80s, okay, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. what I remember saying to Sal. I was like, this is horrible because all their clothes are brand new and clean. <laughs> yeah, it was like, right. all the set pieces are, they go into, like, you know, it's the old West and everything, and they go into this bar, and it looks like a brand new, you know, Keith Urban's <laughs> Country Bar or whatever. I'm like, dude, this is not, you watch all those like old shit, like where, Deadwood and everything. Yeah, they have some amazing clean. sets. Where's yeah. the dirt and soot, you know? <laughs> The film contains an infamous alternate ending in which Chris is decapitated by Jason at the conclusion. Though its sequence has never been commercially released, stills of it can be seen in Peter Brack's book, Crystal Lake Memories. And it was included in Michael Avalon's 1982 novelization. That's right. And uh, we talked about the uh, scores earlier. We talked about how Waxwork uh, released a bunch of their soundtracks already. I want to give a shout-out to Waxwork. Shout-out to Mean Gene. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, probably uh, Part three features probably one of my favorite things at the end of this movie. It's impossible to talk about part three without talking about the disco theme yes. that was included in the film. Uh, co-written by Manfredini and Michael Zager. We share the credit with a fictional band called Hot Ice. Yeah. So according to Manfredini, the track also became popular at disco and gay clubs at the time. <laughs> of course um, they embraced it. I, I don't know what that says about me because I fucking love this goddamn song. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're going to maybe play this as we uh, finish out the episode here. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, folks. Make sure Sure, you subscribe to us on Spotify. Also, check us out on Instagram. Yeah, and by the way, there was a body count of twelve in this uh, last movie, part three, and um, that was uh, you know part one, like we were saying, the rise of Jason. We're definitely going to cover um, the rest of the movies. We got a part two where we're going to cover uh, four through six. Um, those are kind of like the Tommy Jarvis trilogy of them. Yeah. Then uh, we'll get to some the Kane Hodder years oh and beyond. Yeah, oh yeah. Right, maybe Freddy uh, versus Jason, Friday the 13th in 2009. Mm-hmm. But um, that's about it for this episode, so thank you very much. Thanks for listening, folks. Peace and Axel Grace! Bye.